0: Welcome
1: to the exciting world of the movies. Hello, retro movie lovers, and welcome back to the movie graveyard. We have got another amazing, uh, action packed episode for you. One of our, uh, you know, I guess we could call these special episodes, wouldn't you say, Trev?
0: Oh, yeah. Like they're like uh, after school specials almost. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) They're very long. Don't, uh, (laughs) you know, don't get in a stranger's car. Yeah. Uh, don't do drugs and watch these movies we're talking about. Exactly. So we are talking about our
1: favorite movies in 1982. If you guys don't, uh, if you guys maybe you aren't not long time listeners of the show, we started doing this a few years back. I think we did 1980, 1981, and then when we did the 1981 show, we actually realized, man, there were so many horror movies we had to do like a side special of that special, and we did the horror movies in 1981. And uh, it took us a while, but we're back on the wagon. And uh, I got to say, like, these little things, um, Trevor, like, some of my favorite episodes ever to record.
0: Uh, Yeah, it's a good time. Although I'm sure you and I were talking about this a little bit, but making the list is kind of a bitch. Oh, uh,
1: it's so – like, I legitimately was, like, losing sleep the night that I made my list. (laughs) And, like, I made some alterations. And, uh, like, again, just want to stress the way we always do when we make these movies – this is not, this is more like a personalized recommendation thing, kind of like how a guy that worked at a video store would do back in the day. We're not telling mm-hmm. you that these were the best movies in 1982. Um, you know, we're not saying, oh, this one. Because there's some of them like, some of the best, like, made, directed, acted movies in 1982 are not on my list. And I got some real junk, you know, kind of junky, trashy things on here. Um, but, you know... It's like it's just personal, you know, like like all this time has passed, obviously since 1982, a lot of movies have been forgotten, a lot of movies have become classics, but you know, we all have our own stories. Some of them are nostalgia, some of them are ones we we seen recently. Me personally, yeah, like I like I felt bad. There was a couple of films I'm like I can't believe I'm not putting this on the list. But Oh man, yeah, yeah, there's
0: a there's at least five films where if you just came up to me and out, of, and out of context, told me the film and said, would that probably be in your top 10 of 82? I'd be like, for sure. There's no way it wouldn't be. Uh, but that's until you see everything else that came out that year. Well,
1: exactly. And that's how I was. There So like, I was like, this will be easy. You know, I looked at the list and I'm just like, but then there were some movies, like with me personally, like there were some stone cold classics I had to leave off because it was like, I kind of with my list, I kind of was like, okay, like, I don't want it to all be a hundred percent nostalgia and be only the movies that I remember seeing in the theater as a kid. Cause I actually do remember seeing a couple of these in the theater, believe it or not, even though I was like five years old, pretty much when a lot of these movies came out. But mm-hmm. so like mine, I have a couple oddballs in here, Trev and uh, everybody would just have to stick with me, but there are movies that I've seen more recently. Like some of them I'd say in the last 10 years. So some of them I base more like, what am I hungry to revisit now? Whereas like, You can say it's unfair, but some movies I left off, it's just because I've seen them so many times. As much as I love them, like, I probably won't be watching them again in the next year or two. So, like, I, I, I try to, like, leave on a lot where it's like, I'm going to be watching these again, like, really soon, so...
0: Yeah, no, I get that. Um, and I should just say off the top, too, I, I wasn't sure if we were going to, you know, because I kind of ran into the same problem we did in 81. It's it's so dominated by horror, right? Because this is like yeah. the early 80s was such a, a, a boon for horror. And horror is my favorite genre. So I'll just say right now, like my list is mostly horror because I wasn't sure if we would do like the, you know, the spinoff episode again. So yeah. but that was a shame because, like, I mean, I, I felt like at a certain point I was trying to challenge myself, make sure it's not just 10 horror films and trying to figure out where other things came in. Um, But I think it's an okay mix. I do. So I told you before we started recording that I actually have an important question and fans, you're going to actually get to hear uh, my list, maybe alter like in the moment. So I I have two rule based questions I want to run by you, Goat. Sure. Where do you fall on um, films that were released internationally in 82, but didn't come out in the U.S. until later and films that their debut at like a film festival or something was 82, but their first theatrical release would be later.
1: So th- th- this is what I'm going to say cuz cause cause, you know the film distribution thing was like way different back then. So mm-hmm. I'm going to say if it was if it was an international movie for sure if it was any type of foreign movie and it got its main release, and it it had its main heyday in eighty two I say that's fine to okay. leave on the thing with i just i just would kind of like maybe not maybe qualify or disqualify like those like tweeners where it's like it came out in this uh territory in December of eighty one but then it came yeah. out in this you know what i mean like yep but if a movie had its main run and it was like say it was like more popular overseas and it had its main run in eighty two I would say it's fine to leave it on you know.
0: Okay, so that changes one thing. So let me make that change. But you would say the one that I'm more curious about is if a movie, say, just for argument's sake, yeah. <laughs> let's say a movie like debuted at like a particular film festival in like August of '82, uh, or even I think it might have been November of '82, but then didn't really get its theatrical release till '83. I should probably save that one for '83, right?
1: Yeah, I would count that as '83 because to me, like, like in my mind, and I know these these dates get tricky on things like that, but like especially with the film festival circuit. Or, like, even with, like, a lot of distributors did regional runs, you know, and sometimes it was, like, even six months a year later where they did the national run. I would say disqualify those really limited, like, pretty much, like, my bar is, like, if the main, and, I, again, I know movies played more regionally back then than they do now. But I would say if if the general audience could not go see the movie that year, I would say count it of the year that it really came out. You know what I mean?
0: Okay. Uh, I'm just, I have made a couple adjustments. Um And I think I'm good.
1: And and then we, with the, what will be interesting for you is when we finally get to 1983, then you'll have to stack those movies up not against the 82 movies anymore, but against the 83 movies or whatever. Well, there's
0: just there's just one film that I just took off the list because of that there was one particular film, and I'm not gonna I won't say it because it may it might make my 83 list. Um, hope if it doesn't, hope I'll remember and bring it up then. <laughs> but yeah, there was one that uh, didn't really get its full release until 83, but I noticed it's everywhere it's listed as 82 simply because I guess it you know played some festival then. Gotcha. So this is kind of the
1: format that we do on these. It's it's pretty much a top ten, but because it would take us like a long time to really go through, you know, like basically we're going to run through the the bottom half of our list, uh, you know, six through ten, in a kind of abbreviated fashion. Uh, mm-hmm. Just to talk a little bit about why we like those movies, and then we'll take a little bit of a break from the favorites, and we'll do one least favorite. And and I gotta be honest, Trev like, way harder than other years. I had a hard time coming up with the movie I didn't like. And finally...
0: I did, did too. I did, too. We'll talk about that when we get there, I think, yeah.
1: I finally did come up with one. At first, I was just going to say, like, oh, I'm just going to cop out and say there was none. But there is one that, like, I never understood the hype. And it's less of a hate field thing and just more like, I I don't get it, I don't think this is very good, but... So we'll do a least favorite, then we'll jump back in and we'll we'll run down the the top five, you know, five through one, leading up to our favorite. And then to end the show, we'll talk about was there some movies that um, you know, we found within, during the course because this always happens when you research these years to find out what what came out when. There'd always be one or two or maybe three movies that you you want to see. Um, so or yeah, four if you're me. Or four if you're <laughs> four if you're
0: trapped. I don't know about me. I, I, I mean, I can maybe try and cut one of those out, but there's there was four that no, were yeah. really like at the top there for
1: me. No, four so. is fine. It's just, you know, a reasonable uh, you know, length. Mm-hmm. just don't because I mean, I I literally when I did my thing, I could have like there's about a dozen, and I'm like, okay. Yeah, yeah. I just want to just wanna pick the ones that look like the most like, you know, oddball, whatever. Yep. Yep. So yeah, so uh who, who you just, you just want to like run down uh five at a time like you do your bottom five i'll do my bottom five or did you want to trade off one by one trev
0: no we can i can i think we can i can run down mine and then you can run down yours if you'd like
1: cool yeah go ahead and tell us what you got on your list uh six through ten
0: all right so i'll go ten to six uh oh, yeah that's down, what i mean know?
1: yeah <laughs> you know ten but, to uh, midnight however charles bronson wants to do
0: it. yep <laughs> All right. So coming in at number 10 is, uh, I don't know, maybe some people roll their eyes at this because I know it's kind of thought of as like a a very much a lesser sequel. But uh, again, I I built my list. My list really is primarily built on like a lot of nostalgia and a lot of films I watched a lot in the past. And I think of I would happily sit down and watch again right now. Uh, And so my number 10 is Airplane 2. Um, airplane 2. I know it's not as good as the first one, but I feel like when I was growing up, I watched it just as much as the first one. And I, the entire William Shatner sequence is so great. And I would put that William Shatner stuff right up there with anything from the first one. So sorry, Zucker brothers. I know you hate this movie, but, uh, but I like airplane 2 quite a bit. So that's my number 10. My number nine is uh, Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, a, a movie that, uh, you know, I've always thought was pretty good. But over in the like recent years, like a lot of people, I think every, it's just kind of grown more and more on me. And now it's like a definite every October tradition. Um, I'm so glad it's got that second life and people finally accept it for what it is. Uh, Atkins rules in it. Um, yep. Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. Number eight, First Blood. Uh, The first Rambo film, not my favorite Rambo film, but obviously an important one. Um, You know, great performance from Stallone. Very just kind of cool, fun, down and dirty action movie. Uh, And just, uh, you know, nowadays with uh, us knowing how crappy cops are, it's just fun to watch this film. Number seven is a movie you and I have covered, Goat. I chose uh, the great Spanish slasher film Pieces. Yeah. Uh, A very, very goofy, bizarre uh, weird slasher film from Spain, but another movie that I just I just love. I still can't believe I own like a big massive three disc special edition Blu-ray of this weirdo movie. Um, but yeah, a piece is a movie I could watch every t- uh, time, any time, and I-, I love introducing people to it. Hey Trev, did,
1: did your *Pieces* come with the sought-after puzzle? <laughs>
0: It did, yeah. I have oh, set. yeah,
1: yeah. I yeah. didn't get the puzzle, but it's okay. It's still an awesome set.
0: Yeah, it's great. Yeah, and then uh, my number six is, and this is what I'm, this is one where I'm surprised. Like this, I would have thought for sure this would be in my top five, but uh, my number six is uh, George Romero's Creepshow. Uh, a movie that you know, I love King, I love Romero, and I, I like them. I love the old EC comics, and it's just such a perfect marriage of all of those elements. You can just tell Romero's having so much fun in that film, in like a way that I, I'm not sure he. I mean, I love most of his stuff, but this is him his most playful, I think. And uh, yeah, it's another one that uh, you know, every October I try to I try to watch this one. For
1: sure, that's a, that's a great list. Uh, uh, we, as as always, we will have some deja vu, and we uh, mm-hmm. you know. But yeah, so I'll go ahead and jump in here. So I have a number 10, and this is shockingly one that's a little more of a recent discovery for me, like in the last eight, nine years or whatever. But recently, Trev, I've become a big fan of Amityville 2, The Possession.
0: Okay, yeah. It's the best Amityville movie.
1: Yeah, so I kind of had seen... I kind of would agree with that in a weird way, but like I had kind of seen... two through three as a kid and dismissed them and i was always a big fan of the first one and i just would rent it and rent it and you know and i got that that uh, screen factory box set and uh amityville 2 it's so weird the feeling's so weird i love uh it's pretty much the special effects but also the filmmaking technique you can definitely tell that they you know they they or they filmed it you know uh in, in a foreign land <laughs> what it did with some dino de producing it's 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 a nice off-ball thing um, number nine. A, again, this is a little bit more of a. I did love this movie as a kid. I even had the little records and shit to sing, not sing along, but to play along with it. Uh I'm just still a fan of this day of the of the again the technical you know effects puppetry of Dark Crystal. Yeah. Um. Number eight. This is. A, this was a really tough one. Um, like I like I had to like cram this in on my list. This is like. This is another more recent, uh, I saw this on cable when I was like living in some temporary housing when I first came to the area I live in now. So about 10 years ago, trying to remember, yeah, about 10 years ago. So this one is, let me actually pull it up on my phone, the full title. So (laughs) this is, come back to the five and dine, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean the longest okay. movie title in history. Uh, this was uh, just real quick. This is basically a play mm-hmm. that was adapted into a movie by Robert Altman. Have you ever heard of this movie,
0: Trev? Oh, I've seen it.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I, I, I kind of like more in recent times, I've become like really loving movies that were like plays, like another one that's kind of like that is that turn in the movies is like death trap as well. But uh, so basically just real quick, it's like to talk about what's unique about this is um, the movie takes place in like kind of two segments. Well, I say present day, but, but the it's supposed to be 1975, and then it jumps back and forth to between 1975 and 1955. And it's just these young women, um, I guess I should say the cast, too, so awesome cast. You have uh, Karen Black, Cher... Um, Kathy Bates, uh, also, uh, Mark Patton, who a lot of people know from Nightmare on Elm Street too. he plays an interesting (laughs) role in this one, so yeah, so it's, it's basically these young girls who love, you know, James Dean, whatever, and then it's like, I'm a sucker for any movie that has, like, a younger version, an older version of characters, but they're kind of played by the same people, Trev, like, how do you feel about that? (laughs)
0: Uh, I think it always depends on how big like that gap is supposed to be, but right. I think it's I think it's pulled off well uh or it can't be pulled off well, yeah
1: exactly, so yeah, so basically it's just these these women that was this Jimmy Dean fan club, they get together twenty years later, it's pretty much what it is at this this five and dime store. And uh, you know it's it, it's a little bit of, of remembering their youth, and then also seeing where they ended up in life when it happened to them. I'm again, I'm just a sucker for dramas like that.
0: Yeah, it's cool. It's really cool seeing, um, uh, especially seeing uh, Karen Black in like a non horror role. She's actually the the reason I originally watched this movie.
1: Exactly. Cool. Yeah. And like uh, her, like I don't want to spoil too much in case anybody's able to catch it because it actually does show up on cable movie channels quite a bit, uh, believe it or not. Like there's a Blu-ray of it, and I was I finally broke down and got it, but it's it's okay. Always like over 20 bucks but it it's worth it's worth seeing at least one time i think for the acting for everybody and um number seven is a uh, creep show george romero's uh this is one i originally i thought this was going to be in the top three um it's a little bit more of that mix of nostalgia because i remember like actually with bated breath as a kid trev wanting to see this movie so bad yeah and because uh, cause the the trailer when you saw it in the theater like you know like literally I was like the perfect age of like both Creepshow and EC Comics type shit when this came out so
0: well, I think I had read the comic book before the before I saw the movie too wow. I think I like I got the comic book from like the library you know the the great Bernie Wrightson comic book so. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that comic book adaptation, there was a copy of it, and I'm such an idiot for passing. I even bought like a Beavis and Butthead book over it. But th- there was a copy, I'm not shitting you, at my local, well, not local, but at, at a, a nearby shopping mall that I saw on the shelves for years and years. Like, I'm talking 10 plus years, close to, probably like seven or eight years. Like, the thing was just sitting on the shelf in this Walden Books, and like I could tell, I always looked at it every time I went there, and I could tell it was the same copy because the, the front corner was bent a little bit. I like I'm, I feel like such a dumbass. I think you can still track that down, but uh, oh, it's back in print. Is is back in print? Yeah, I need to yeah. get that. But it's like, yeah, like I wish I would have had that all these years. And number six, this is one that's actually again, uh, I wouldn't say it's a more recent, but I would say the '90s. I got into this movie, and that's Ridley Scott's uh, Blade Runner. Uh, I know it's kind of cool to say Blade Runner is actually really not that good, and you know the sequel is way better and all that. But j- just for me, Blade Runner is like another thing. Um, I'm kind of obsessed with the uh, directorial style of a certain period of Ridley Scott's career. And this falls right into that. It's just, this is just another production design movie for me, Trev, okay. but it's like, I know there's a lot of criticism for this film about how slow it moves and that it's supposedly boring, but I actually like the slow pace cause it gives me more time to take in like the atmosphere and the world building that they did with it. So mm.
0: cool.
1: Yeah. So now that we're taking a break from stuff we uh, we like, we're going to be like how mo- <laughs> most podcasts are. We're, we're going to get negative, Trev. <laughs> so what was your least favorite movie in 1982?
0: Well, like you said, so I had like a tough time with this because I had a couple, you know, like uh, I'll just kind of go through my thought process before I talk about the one I, I chose. Um, but yeah, you're right. It was weird. It was interesting looking at eighty two and seeing no films that like you just hate, you know. Um, so, for instance, like I'm not, and I get crap for this all the time, but uh, I'm not a big ET fan. Like, I've never understood. I mean, I, I it's okay. I think it's fine, but I've always felt like it's very, very overrated. Maybe I'm heartless. I don't know. But it's just in in terms of Spielberg's oeuvre, and in particular his '80s output, it's it's not like a favorite of mine. But I mean, I see how I, I, I think it's good, you know. So of course, I wasn't going to throw that in here. From for a while, I was really toying with just saying Grease too, because I remember seeing Grease too and just finding it very disappointing back in the day. Uh, I do love the first Grease. But I also know there's been like a little bit of a critical re-evaluation of Grease 2. Um, and I don't I, – I saw it when I was so young that I felt like it would almost be unfair to be like, that's the one. Because maybe I should rewatch it and see if I might have a little bit more fun with it today with, uh, you know, different expectations. So the one I ended up going with was one I actually have watched recently. And again, this is a movie that I don't necessarily hate, but I find it very disappointing. Um, and that is Trail of the Pink Panther. Yeah. So I, so I recently um, – Just a couple months ago, I or like yeah, a month and a half ago or so, I went back through all the Peter Sellers Pink Panther films because I finally got the one on DVD I'd been missing, and that was what I'd always been waiting for. I was like, well, once I get this one, I'll sit down and watch them all. And I did that, and it was so much fun to go back and and watch those all again because it was one of those things where – I don't know if this is the case with you, Goat, but there are certain movie series where – you feel like you've seen them all, and then you sit down as an adult and start watching them, and realize I don't know if I've ever seen these movies like all the way through. I've seen like right. pieces of them on cable, and that certainly seemed to be the case with with Pink Panther. Where it's like, oh, watching them as full movies now, and watching that evolution of the character. You know, as, as people know, like you know, Clouseau is just a supporting character in the first film, and he's not quite the doofus he is in the later ones. And but he was the breakout character, so they made him the main character and shot in the dark. And then you get into the, the later sequels, and I just like, and you know, they start really pushing the insanity of uh Dreyfus, his uh, his boss, and also Nemesis, to the point where he becomes this super villain. Um, and it just gets more and more comedic, but I just was loving it. I mean, they're they're, they're very goofy. Um, you know, the, the dumber and dumber Clouseau gets, the funnier they get. Um and I was really enjoying it. And then unfortunately, then in 82, you get to trail the Pink Panther, which was uh Peter Sellers had passed away. And the studio and Blake Edwards weren't going to let the cash cow of the Pink Panther series die with Peter Sellers. So they kind of took uh they were I guess in, to their eyes they were somewhat lucky in that one of the earlier Pink Panther films they made, the first cut of it, it ended up being like 3 hours and they weren't very happy with that cut so they removed like a whole subplot out and like you know just chopped the film down majorly. And so they had all that footage and they're like, "Well, we could take that footage and kind of build a new movie about around it." And so this movie uses that footage uses outtakes from some of the other Pink Panther films, and then uses a bunch of flashbacks to previous entries. And they basically build this narrative where Clouseau goes missing. Uh, And then Joanna Lumley plays this reporter who's looking for Clouseau, and that allows her to go interview a bunch of people from his past, like his father, Dreyfus, And then when they do these interviews, they basically use that as an excuse to show best of clips from the previous films. Um, There's many sequences with Clouseau where you can tell it's just obviously a body double because they didn't have sellers available. Sometimes the, the the incorporation of the footage they have is kind of bizarre because they just flat out use a full scene from the previous Pink Panther film and they use it again uh, as if it's like, uh, but it's not a flashback. They just use the scene again. <laughs> Robert Loggia shows up in this playing a different character than he played in the previous Pink Panther movie. Um Peter, or, uh, sorry, uh, David Niven comes back as his character from the first Pink Panther. But this is really sad. Uh, at By this point, he was really, I think it was ALS that he had, and he mm. could not even speak. No. Uh, and So you'll notice when you watch that scene, he's actually being dubbed by uh, an impersonator. I think it's actually Rich Little doing his voice. Um, so yeah, there's like a lot of things about it that are just so bizarre. Uh, and it's, you know, the, like in the previous movies, Dreyfus, as I said, had gone completely insane. He became a supervillain that threatened the world with a giant laser. And now this movie starts and he's just back to normal and he's like a cop again. And there's even a part where like the reporter's interviewing him and she's like, so there are rumors you didn't like Cluzo. I'm Like rumors? Doesn't the entire world remember when he went on TV and threatened the world and held it for ransom? It's just it's not consistent with its own continuity. It's it feels really kind of gross and cynical. Um, now, the reason I don't hate it is because it does allow you to see all of the remaining Peter Sellers as Clouseau footage. So that's like the nice bonus of it, right? And the thing is, back in, back when they made this movie, they didn't realize that someday there would be DVDs yeah. to where they could have just released that footage as like a special disc or a special bonus disc. So they had to kind of build a movie around it. So I'm glad that it yeah. exists so that we get to see everything he filmed as Cluzo and you get to see those scenes that got cut out of the other movie. But this movie as a whole, there's just something really kind of um, – Upsetting about it, and it it really is like a a low point for the ones that star him. Yeah, I was gonna say that that sounds so
1: bizarre that it almost um, it sounds kind of like you said like a cash grab and fucky, but yeah, that sounds more like uh, um, a a DVD special feature than it does a f- yeah feature film. Now, do you do you know any of the background like when this was released, was there a, like a backlash against the film? Did people realize they've been duped or like anything like that?
0: I think, you know, they they sold it as like they and, and and to be fair, this could have been some of the thinking. I don't want to just crap on them and say they were like this was completely cynical. But they sold it as more of like a tribute to Peter Sellers. Now, I know there was a backlash from Peter Sellers' widow. She spoke out against the film. But the movie still did well enough that the, the series went on. There was one more after this, um, where uh, so the, the strange thing about this movie too is this movie has no, this movie really has no conclusion because they didn't have Peter Sellers available to you know obviously resolve anything. So when the movie ends, clues always just still missing. And they did <laughs> they, they did one more uh, Pink Panther film in this continuity. Well, I guess two more because they did the one years later with Roberto Panini as the son of the Pink Panther. Yeah. But but they did one following this. I can't even remember the name right now, but they introduced some new character that was supposed to be like the new Clouseau. And he was like some really lame, unfunny American detective. And he finds Cluzo, but the, what they did was they actually had uh, Roger Moore play Cluzo. They said he'd had plastic surgery. Wow! And so Roger Moore does this like kind of bizarre Peter Sellers impression. Um, that one is like that one's just completely atrocious. That one there's like no redeeming value to that movie. So at least Trail of Pink Panther you get some some new Sellers footage. So yeah, I don't think there was too much of a backlash against this one. I, it certainly did well enough for them to go on. I think the next one is where everyone's like, all right, no, we we're not accepting this anymore.
1: So yeah, I gotta ask, where are you at on the? son of pink panther and roberto Benino, like he I, like even though he came out a long time ago he, i think he's him and rowan atkinson are probably the last like dubbed international comedy geniuses how did you think he filled in the shoes
0: you know i saw son of the pink panther in the theater my family went uh, i was like you know 12 years old and at 12 years old i thought it was pretty funny uh, I just have to be honest and say I haven't revisited in a long time. Mm-hmm. I know now it's kind of it's kind of hip and cool to like just say Roberto Benigni is is terrible and there's nothing yeah. great about him. So I don't know I don't know how I'd feel about it now. Um, I was actually interested to go back and revisit it because I did go through that whole series. Yeah. Um, so if I do anytime soon, maybe I'll check back. But uh, but yeah, I remember liking it as a twelve year old and thinking it was okay. So I have certainly my gut reaction is always I, I believe *Son of Pink Panther* has like a really negative kind of uh, reputation as well. Yeah. And I've always felt like it's not that bad. It's not as bad as people make it out to be. Yeah, I mean,
1: clearly, uh, you know, I was, uh, I don't know exactly how old I was, but I was probably a young teenager at that point when it came out. And, uh, uh, And, like, I just remember the trailers, like, playing like uh in the theater playing more like uh like you can tell when something's not really hitting even trailers like you know comedy trailers especially people are, even though it's a trailer people are still supposed to laugh and i just remember that always like sucking the air out of the room when the trailer came <laughs> on kind of. so i i've actually never seen it myself either uh unless i like i flipped through and saw someone cable or something one time but yeah like i, I did like like even as a kid, because the the original pink Panther movies in the early days of cable in like the early eighties they were in such heavy rotation on the movie yeah. channels yep. like I always like even though I really wasn't like you know really in the know of like you know the the you know like like I would always watch the credits like the opening credits, and then as soon as it became a live action movie, I would change the channel as a kid <laughs> but uh but yeah like I just that was like one of the first times like that son of the Pink Panther movie were like. I was just like – I could tell that they were trying to revive something that had been long, long dead. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, although I still like – and I don't know if it's just because it is Blake Edwards or something. I would. There's still a part of me that like kind of respects Son of the Pink Panther more than like the lame Steve Martin remake. You know? Yeah. Like yeah. at least trying – I mean whether Roberto Bonini did a good job or not, again, I can't really remember. But yeah. at least they tried to keep that – like, oh, it's Clouseau's son. And, and that's to me like a little bit more respectful than just having Steve Martin take that part over because I don't know that anybody wants to see someone else try and match what uh, what Sellers did. I mean, obviously I'm wrong, because that movie was successful enough to get a sequel as well, but I could never deal with it. Um, I love Steve Martin, but uh, that's Inspector Clouseau is Peter Sellers, you know?
1: You know Blake Edwards movie, I kind of dug as a kid to watch it on TV. <laughs> you ever see a fine mess with Ted Danson and Howie Mandel? <laughs> uh,
0: yes, uh, yeah, I, God, I haven't thought of that in a long time. I know,
1: time. I know, yeah, yeah. yeah. And ever then, walk
0: like a man with uh, Howie Mandel. I I don't think I's is that the one where he's like a caveman or something. Yeah, well, he's like a, yeah, he's like a, like he's been living in like a, yeah, he's been living in a cave and he's not like not a caveman is in prehistoric, but he's right. like a a man that was raised by animals and then they okay. try and like domesticate him. Yeah,
1: yeah it, it, it's it's funny. Like I'm looking at his filmography and it's kind of amazing how many Blake Edwards movies I haven't seen. So mm-hmm. yeah, but yeah, so. Mine, like, I think some people are going to be like, what the fuck are you picking on this movie, Goat? But I have to say, like, for a movie that was, like, just so damn hyped at the time, and also a hit, not just, like, hype, but also a hit, dude, I never got the big deal. Uh, And I even, like, I even, like, rewatched, like, maybe about 20 minutes of it, um, just sitting in the living room probably, like, six months ago. Dude, I don't know what the big deal is about the 1982 film version of Annie. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> i mean and again it was like i remember and i want to say it was probably i mean it could just be anything in general uh but i want to say like star wars hyped this uh you know in the when it came out in the late 70s or whatever i feel like star wars like ushered in this era of hype for um like movies that were like like meant to be like obviously Big like whatever what do you ever say, like four quadrant movies but they were like really marketed to kids and i remember annie shit like being everywhere like the comic strip coming back you know mm-hmm. uh products having annie on it and stuff and like yeah like it like i know the songs are catchy and all that and it's adapted from a very famous you know broadway version and stuff but yeah i just never got it man and it's just like the cast everything just I don't know, like like maybe I'm just not the audience, but like I just I never thought the songs were that good, and when I watch the movie, it's like, it's like pure fucking corn. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> so, so yeah, I'm, I'm going to throw I'm going to throw the disc to Annie. Sorry, sorry for all those people. Oh, sorry for all those Jay Z fans.
0: Probably at this point more than anything, right, Trev? Oh yeah, you yeah, uh, well I don't know. I wonder if how many of those Jay Z fans. God, is that like i wonder how many know that comes from an old movie yeah
1: yeah, yeah. probably not that many well you know probably too when they hear the sample and the song they probably think it's something like much older they probably think it's like something from the 1940s or something mm-hmm. so yeah so that's the uh last bit of negativity hopefully for this show so let's get back on the uh positive train Um, Did you want to trade these off more one by one, Trev?
0: Yeah, we can start trading off.
1: Yeah, we'll trade off now. So, Trev, tell us what you got a number five spot on your list.
0: All right. My number five is actually another film that you and I have done on this show uh, ago, and that is uh, Class of 1984. Ah. Uh, So this is another one where I'm actually kind of surprised to see it not only end up in my top ten, but end up in my top five. I don't know if that would have been the case a few years ago. But uh, ever since I got the DVD, and then especially when you and I revisited it for that episode, I've gone back to it quite a bit since then. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's, uh, it's like a, almost like a comfort film for me. I've, I've talked on this show before about how one thing I love is I love eighties punks, um, in movies. And this obviously has, uh, that's there, they, they're the antagonists in this film. Um, we, you know, we kind of talked when we did our commentary for this, we, we were, we were both talking about how we were just struck, but what seems on a surface level in particular, you look at like the, you know, the poster, you think of the title, just the general rep of this film. And it could have just easily been like a trauma esque kind of goofy exploitation film and in fact you know like the follow-up class of 1999 which I also love but that falls more into that realm but class of 1984 is actually this like really really intelligent like well done kind of mix of exploitation and like genuine drama and compelling like kind of action especially in the third act um Perry King's performance is great as the teacher like an idealistic teacher who moves to this school kind of overtaken by this one particular gang yeah. Timothy ba- Timothy Van Patten is just fantastic as as the main uh you know bully or punk in the, the evil gang and just the kind of the battle of wills that you know ends up engaging between these two and where it all heads and it's genuinely thrilling at the end uh, yeah it's just a, such a good time such a great movie um, that I, I still think to this day even though it has its rep I feel like I'm I'm always kind of saying this should be a bigger cult movie than it is. Like, I, I think this I is the one that did, that just deserves such a bigger reputation. So yeah, class of 1984. I also love when movies um do the futuristic thing, but like <laughs> it's 1982 and they're making a movie about 1984. That's just that just makes me laugh too. Yeah, but, like how
1: much was gonna change
0: in two years, yeah. you know. Yeah.
1: Yeah, like like I w I was I was listening to the um to the commentary track this last week for Tough Turf. And, like, they were saying that, like, they really based it, and I know Class of 1984 was the same way, but, like, they really were basing, like, the directors, like, I guess the school's getting, like, very, very rough and, like, having, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, metal detectors in them and shit. Like, I guess a lot of people in Hollywood, they were very excited by that trend and, like, you know, of, like, the way violence was escalating in American schools, and uh, they kind of found it. Uh, fascinating in a way And, and and obviously these are exploitation movies but i think it's interesting that you know the major studios they weren't making serious dramas about the topic but the exploitation directors kind of were incorporating it
0: Yeah. And it's really like it is. It's a film, too, that if you consider, I mean, a a modern audience that comes to it now might not see it that way, but it's a movie that kind of was ahead of its time in terms of showing, you know, what's going on in schools. And you there there weren't a lot of movies up until this period of, you know, typically school movies were just these kind of, you know, like sex comedies or general like coming of age stories. And to be like, oh, no, 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 there's a problem. (laughs) So there's like bad stuff going on in the schools. Uh, Yeah. It's a, good, it's a
1: good one. I love it. Just a side note, one of my favorite DVD covers too, like the version that has like the purple cover. I love that. With like That's the, the version I have. Yeah, yeah the illustration. It's awesome. Mm-hmm. And rolling my wrong, wrong? Nothing, nothing wrong here at all. Uh, well, <laughs> on my list, I'll go uh, number five. This is another one that was, uh, a, like I said, a more recent thing. Um, I want to say this is a Robin Williams film, and I really got into it uh just since his passing i tried to do kind of like a rewatch and i rented this movie and fell in love with it and uh, buying a copy but uh yeah the world according to garp i I never saw it and i was shocked because my boy phil Dees is a big rob moose fan too and he never seen it either but uh i kind of always avoided this movie trev and this is like a very dumb prejudice to have and it's kind of just a prejudice i had when i was like young or whatever But, like, when I was younger, and I don't mean just, like, as a little kid, but I'd say probably, you know, up until adulthood, I never really, like, I don't know, like, checked out movies that people did before they got famous. And I just Mm -hmm. always, you know, assumed, like, oh, like, The World According to Garbage is probably not that good because Robin Williams, you know, he wasn't super famous yet or whatever when he did it. But it's, I think it's one of the best things. So, like, the only way I can really ascribe this movie to modern day, and it, it kind of was acclaimed at the time it came out, and I always saw it in video stores and stuff, and I never rented it for some reason. But um, it's kind of, like, in a weird way. It's kind of, like, a lot like a Forrest Gump-type movie, uh, just not with as much, uh, you know, famous historical figures in it. But, yeah, like, it really follows this um this boy Garp, um, you know, growing, being like, literally being born And growing up, and uh, you see him as a little kid and stuff, and his weird oddball upbringing, and you you see everything from him, you know, like, I would say uh, Robin Williams starts playing him, like, at the high school age, kind of, and it kind of goes all the way up through, like, the middle age uh, time, but it's like, yeah, it's just this guy who had this really like weird upbringing with like a weird mom and all these weird circumstances and like I don't want to give too much away because one of the the real powerful things for me when I watched it is there's a lot of unexpected things and it it does have it's not just like pure drama there is like a really like kind of weird um kind of ironic comedy to it and there are many scenes that are meant to be funny too but um it just has a very weird, uh, feel to it. And, 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 there's some times where it goes super, super dark. And I got to say, those are the times, uh, I really like about the movie and made the movie feel like a classic film to me. Um, very flawed characters, both Garp and, you know, the woman he marries and just, I mean, just, you know, again, without not going to spoilers, but, uh, I would really, you know, ask anybody to, uh, check this movie out especially if you if even if you're like one quarters of a a rob williams fan you gotta see this because it's one of the and it's just one of his most iconic roles and it's a role i think probably only rob williams could pull off and make you actually enjoy and like so have you ever seen this one at all (laughs) treff
0: I haven't. You know, what's funny is I was thinking when you were talking about how, like, you avoided it for a long time because of, like, a, a, a dumb prejudice, right? The idea of, like, well, the movies they made before they are famous must not be that good. I, I had, like, a different one when I was young, and I don't know if you can relate to this at all, but I kind of had that mentality when I was young of – we all kind of accepted Robin Williams as, like, the really goofy guy, right? Like, um, you know, this, like, super manic comedian. I was, like, primarily seeing him on TV um, and I think back when I would have been young enough to where this movie was probably on cable and stuff, it, I think this was one of the ones that just looked a little too serious to me. Like I, at this point I didn't want to see Rob Williams in anything that wasn't just like all out comedy, you know? Yeah. So like, seriously, I probably would have been the dummy who you give me the option of watching world according to Garp or like club paradise. And I'll be like, well, I'm going to go with club paradise. <laughs> because That's like just a pure comedy, you know? Um, and I think that's like another reason I never saw Moscow on the Hudson as well. Cause it just didn't look like I was like a, rom- a romantic comedy. No, thank you. You know? So, I, yeah. and then, but, but then, when I got older, and obviously started to appreciate Robin Williams more as an actor, um, I don't think I just didn't I was I never went back and like revisited those films that I'd missed before. So. Um, I definitely should do that because there's there's definitely like I'd also like to revisit things like a um, like Cadillac Man. I think I saw like mm-hmm. once when I was young, but didn't appreciate it back then. Um, so yeah. yeah, there's there's definitely some things I'd like to go back to. So I will check this out when I get a chance.
1: Yeah, yeah p- please, I urge you to because it's it's so. And uh, Moscow on the Hudson is another one that I I discovered um, during that you know kind of rediscovering his films um, after his passing. And uh, it, it's really good, too. It's I wouldn't put it in the same, you know, class as World According to Garp, but for a movie nobody talks about, Moscow and the Hudson is really good. Like, Moscow and the Hudson is very interesting because he plays, like, a Russian in- immigrant who, like, really, like, has nothing to his name. And it's just, like, if anything, I would say Moscow and the Hudson is, like, a movie that's worth checking out for people besides The Robin Williams Factor. It's just, like, no one would ever make that movie today. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's definitely got that vibe for it, going for it. So yeah. So uh Trevor, what do you got at the number four spot?
0: All right. The number four spot is actually uh one of the films that I I asked for clarification on earlier. So this was one that you can see how that how important that question was because this is a movie that's pretty high on my list, and I wasn't sure if I could put it into my list. And that is because this is a film that was released in Italy in 1982, um, and it was quite successful. had a had a big run. Um, I'm going to give you some clues here, but it did did not make its way to America until 1984. Interest. And in 1984, a very butchered version of it came out under uh, not even the right title. It was released in America uh, as "Unsane," and that is the uh, the fantastic Dario Argento film "Tenebrae." Oh yes, Uh, "Tenebrae" uh, is one of my favorite Argento movies. Um, So this is kind of his return to the giallo. Um, after taking some time away from that. And this is often, you know, this, this and opera are kind of often thought of as like, is like the last kind of like great Argento films. Um, but but basically like definitely coming, like coming back to the Giallo and basing a story around some like actual experiences he'd had. Um, apparently he had been having uh, like a kind of a crazy fan call him and talk to him a lot about how this fan like loves Suspiria and was, like, feeling influenced by things in Suspiria, and that really kind of freaked Argento out, as it should. So Tenebrae is a story of an American author uh, who is in Rome to promote a new novel he wrote, and at the same time this these serial killings start up. And it seems that the serial killings might be inspired by uh, the murders of his last novel. And so obviously um, he becomes kind of, you know, a person of interest in this case, and he decides to take it upon himself to kind of try and figure out what's going on to, you know, Clear his name a little bit. Uh, I won't get into the twists and turns of this, but you know, super violent in that great Argento way of you know beautiful violence. There is an incredible, uh, you know, one of the one of the things I always remember this way is an incredible tracking shot, which every once in a while still just go on YouTube and watch this because it yeah. still, like, boggles the mind how they pulled it off. And I know how they pulled it off. I've, like, you know, I've read about it. I, I read Argento's autobiography where he talked about it. I've seen people talk about making those. But you just still can't believe that they did this. Um, this amazing tracking shot that goes all around the outside of a house and is, like, peeking in the windows on this woman as she's walking around. And the other thing that's great about that tracking shot and just the film in general is uh, this is also – I love Goblin, uh, the, the band Goblin, who did the scores to many of Argento's movies. Uh, Suspiria is their best overall score, but Tenebrae is my favorite Goblin theme. The, the Tenebrae theme song is just such a banger, and every time it comes on in this movie, I get I get very excited, and it plays over that tracking shot. But but yeah, if anyone hasn't checked this one out, especially if you're a horror fan and those those great Italian horror films, um, and giallo as a genre. This is this is definitely one of the best ones.
1: Yeah, I, I got to vouch for this one. Um, I didn't even realize, like you know, it had its real release in '82. It, it, it very well might have been on my list. Um, but my favorite Dario Geno movie, my favorite Goblin theme, like mm-hmm. we were like like when when I you know first bought this on the old ass Anchor Bay DVD, like me and Phil D's man, we wore this fucker out. <laughs> the soundtrack. I bought the soundtrack. We listen to it all the time. Yeah, and like Phil, Deesva, he actually became obsessed because you know, like the the weird like little. It's not really a voice, I don't think, but the synth or something. He was always he's always uh, convinced that it was saying "fire it up, fire I, it up, fire." I thought it that up. when I
0: was younger too. Yeah, yeah. It is, they are they are saying something in Italian, um, yeah. but I can't remember what it is. But yeah, it does it does sound like "fire it up" for sure.
1: Yeah, again, a, a, another movie. I have multiple multiple editions of um love it yeah and 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 i'm with you that tracking shot like it just blew me away so much um when i first saw it i was just like i was like how come more people don't do this kind of thing with filmmaking is it just that it's too hard or it's just if anything it'd probably actually be easier to pull off now than it was back then i would think but
0: uh yeah yeah. the only thing i think is i I think sometimes like you watch that tracking shot and I, i feel like there's probably some people who would argue that there's no point to that, right? You're just being flashy for flashiness' sake. Um, you know, there's no, there's no, st- there's no story reason to do it. And, and I guess my argument to that would be like, yeah, who cares? Like, so what? Like, you know, filmmaking You're is right. this like, is this visual medium? Sometimes it's, it's, it's exciting to watch people just be playful with it and just try something and say, you know, I'm gonna do something that you don't get in other art forms. Look how, in- look how incredible this is. Um, and yeah, you know, I don't, it doesn't pull you out of the film. Instead, it sucks you into where you're just like, wow, I can't believe he's pulling this off.
1: So Yeah. Tre- Trevor, I, this is something I've been meaning to ask you for a while. So like, I mean, obviously we're both big horror guys and I've always, I've been less and don't get me wrong. There are some films that generally, you know, tense up my nerves, frighten me, whatever. But I'm, when it comes to horror, like I'm very much less a scares guy and more of an atmosphere guy. And like, oh, yeah. yeah. And and like if the if the atmosphere is what sells it to me like like when I see a really atmospheric horror film that really takes its time and it's not worried about like pace and keeping the audience entertained when it's like really showing the landscape the geography of the location of what's going on and, and the lighting and the music and everything. That, like, like that crane shot that we were talking about, where you said, like, some people would just be, like... In their mind, it would be, like, film, you know, making masturbatory whatever artifice. But to me, that's, like it's that type of thing that makes you feel like you're actually there witnessing an event that's happening. Mm-hmm. So like, yeah, like to me, like that's just the type of uh, horror filmmaking, especially in general that I gravitate towards. So,
0: and it makes you feel like you're in the hands of somebody who sees the world in a different way, which is yeah. very true of Argento films in general, right. Or at least the, or at least the best ones, you know, like the the, the, the fact that he would look at that sequence and just even have the idea to do it that way. Like, that's, what's exciting about filmmaking, you know? So to so at anyone that would poo-poo that, I just I just don't even understand. Like, why, what are you doing watching movies if you're not, yeah. like, impressed by that and not pulled into it?
1: And, and, again, I don't know if it's a thing where it's it, – I don't get if it's, like, a um, – uh, what do you call it? Like, an attention span thing or if it's, like, people have just more gravitated towards uh, the feeling of TV, which is, like, covering more ground quicker sometimes. But it's just, like – I think it's really weird that people – now seem to value less the cinematic uh, approach and feeling. You know what I mean? Because it's mm-hmm. like you, like you said, like like I would be more forgiving of a film maybe not having the most dynamic story if at least like the visuals and directing and like things were, like you said, like when you feel like you're kind of in the hands of somebody who has a vision. And I and I see a, a lot of modern films, and I know it's really easy, and I've been guilty of it many times on this show. Where it's like some of your favorite films are older films, so it's just real easy to out of hand kind of like shit on everything that's brand new. And it's like, even new movies, like, I don't hate the majority of them, but I always feel like they're only going like 75% of the way that they, they, you know, that they should, like, they're not really hitting like full speed because it's like, in terms of like cinematic, because I always feel like. There's too much of that thing of like don't let people get bored, don't let them get uh, like confused about what's going on. It's like in older films, I felt like they were very like they were very much more measured and made with a steady hand, and like they trusted the audience a little bit more just to kind of get into the feeling of the movie and not always look for the instant payoff of the story or the whatever you know.
0: Yeah, there's also something to be said for the filmmakers who are you know coming up in the you know '70s and '80s and even like later '60s, right? These were all filmmakers that were very much responding to. Um, you know, very classic Hollywood and, you know, coming up with new techniques to try and separate their work. And what we see now is most of the young filmmakers today are coming up inspired by those filmmakers, the ones who are already the rebels and the ones who had already kind of, you know, innovated all this stuff. And I think it might be harder today uh, to give them some credit, right? I think it's harder today to kind of truly innovate. Instead, what I think you see is a lot of um, I want to pay homage to the things that I loved so much when I was younger.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, So, and and I mean, I, and I like a lot of stuff, like, don't get me wrong. I have, I have no problem with that. And I like when people do like modern versions of Giallo and stuff, but yeah, I don't, it it is exciting when you see someone who you can tell is actually like, no, screw this. Like, I'm going to try and give this system the same shot, you know, to the heart that these filmmakers were back then, but it's definitely fewer and far between now.
1: Yeah, and I, I think I think it's really sad, too, but it, I think a lot of times it, it, it's maybe not so much now the, the failure of the filmmakers as much as, as there's always the uh, the pressure from financiers or studios mm-hmm. to kind of, like, point the finger and say, like, this is fluff or this is fat and it's not needed. And any, any little piece of fat or fluff should be sliced off a movie. And I kind of like, especially if you're trying to build a movie to be something that's rewatchable. I think a lot of times like there's just a little extra shot here, a little extra shot there. Uh, it it helps sell a movie and make a movie like more like memorable. Like if you know what I mean? Um, Mm -hmm. like, uh, like just any of the movies we, we've covered recently on this show like like you know especially the ones that i've that i've watched over a period of time and gotten really familiar with it's like a lot of times it's like when you see a movie once and then like five years later you're talking about it with some friends of course everybody's going to remember like the two or three big moments but it's like when you rewatch a movie and like you're actually a fan of a movie do you ever do this trev like sometimes you just kind of focus on little tiny almost like transitional scenes that like they are important but it's not like a big deal like it like it's it's kind of weird like recently we did pretty and pink and one of my favorite shots it's just basically a walk and talk shot of when uh molly ringwald and andrew mccarthy leave the record store and they're walking to his car to go on a date but because they had to kind of go handheld it's like a different feel and it's it becomes very voyeurish. it's like less of a slick thing and i always liked that scene it's a scene nobody would ever remember that film but it's like in that instant like you don't really feel like you're even watching a john hughes movie anymore you just feel like you're watching two normal real people walk across the street you know what i mean like just weird shit like that i think at this point uh stands out to me more about
0: movies than yeah, no, uh, I... you know I have a feeling that that's why, like, you and I love, like, someone like Tarantino so much or one of the yeah. reasons, right? Because yeah. Tarantino is one of the few filmmakers who still will do that, right? Just have, like, a like like little what you just said, sequences like that, right, that don't necessarily add to the narrative. Yeah. Um, you know, David Lynch is great at this as well. And what you're saying about, like, you know, watching films over and over, like, you know, so, like, you know, my favorite movie of all time is Night Leave Me Dead, which I know you also love. And yeah. I've seen that movie hundreds of times. And, yeah, at this point, whenever I watch it now, it's all about just, like, I know that movie – front and back. So now, you know, every time I watch it, it's more about looking for like the little things and trying to experience, like pull out new, like, Oh, I, I never noticed that before or whatever. Um, yeah, that, I think that's definitely fun. I d- One last thing I want to say about Tenebrae too. Um, cause I know you'll probably sign off on this as well. Go. Um, I don't want to give just all the love only to the tracking shot. Yeah. I'm not going to say where the sequence is cause I don't want to spoil anything, but this movie also has without a doubt the best blood spray, uh, scene, like yeah. ever in a movie um i there's a particular sequence involving blood spray when you see the movie you'll know what i'm talking about i just can't i have to imagine everybody on set when that when that worked as well as it did <laughs> i can't believe they didn't all just start applauding like the, the, to have to wait till they held cut to applaud because man what a visual but
1: the... yeah like i i, I don't want to say anything either to like spoil for people who haven't seen it because i really want people to see this movie's fresh but it, it, it's definitely a, a a movie where um I guess you could say it ends abruptly, something really major <laughs> happens like yeah. right before the movie ends. I gotta say that's kind of a lost art too. I feel like a little bit oh like, dude
0: i I'm so with you i uh, abrupt endings are the best. you think of like the fly American Werewolf yeah. in London um you know like I Tarantino again bringing him up recently i uh, I think of like how much I love the ending of Death proof yeah uh, oh, abrupt yeah. endings are great, yeah. Yeah. when when the narrative calls for it
1: yeah you you, you got to have the right story in the right mood and it's got to be the right you know kind of pay off with the abrupt ending but yeah man i really i really miss that um i don't know i don't like i've been kind of meditating on this recently trev and i and i was actually just thinking about this yesterday and not even in relation to the show but just thinking about it but um do you think because people say you know there's always going to be stories and there's always going to be you know it doesn't matter what you shoot your movie on it it doesn't whatever but do you think a little bit maybe the switchover in technology from large bulky film cameras has kind of changed the way movies are made because now you go digital you can shoot as long as you want or like a film reel you're going to run out in a couple minutes like, I kind of feel like when people had to work with this, like, cumbersome equipment, you had to focus and know exactly what you were trying to get, and you had to do that for every single segment of the movie, every single scene, every where it's like now they just kind of set up four or five cameras, master, close-up, and they just let everything run at the same time. Do you think maybe we lost something, like a certain, like, I don't know exactly what to call it, except for just a, a planning style of the director? and a, Yeah. You know,
0: I think for sure it's, it's weird. Cause you'd think it would be the opposite, right? You'd think that because you can, because you have these digital files and you're not worried about, you know, Oh, we only have this much film. You would think people would be more experimental, yeah. but I think to, and I think maybe this is the point you're trying to get at. There was something to the preciousness of film. And, you know, if we are going to spend the money for this film and, you know, we only have this much, let's try and make this like the best possible shot. So let's come up with the most yeah. unique creative things and now it's just like when you I guess when you can do anything for, for whatever reason, it almost like re- removes that like desire to yeah. to be precious with like what you're doing. So it's a it's a weird like you, you would have you would have thought this would open up a more, uh, you know, uh, experimental filmmaking. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, not to say that, like you said, there's there's obviously still filmmakers who are trying. But uh, but yeah, it seems it seems lesser for sure. Yeah, there is a uh, like. Yeah, you think you
1: would have more shit. Like, I, I this just came to me off the top of my head, but like, I can't remember the name of it. But there is this like, like pretty much when the, you you got to like a halfway decent handheld uh, video camera. it Might have been either. I think it was probably high eight, but it might have been mini DV. And there was this movie that they always would play on. I can't remember either. I see or Sundance, where it would literally like the entire movie. Because, like, I think they had gotten to the point where you could do, like, maybe, like, a 75-minute tape. And there was this movie, and I, I want to say, I could be misremembering, I think it was in black and white. But it was made in the late 90s, early two, eh, probably late, mid to late 90s. But, like, there was just this independent movie, Trevor, like, literally, like, the whole movie was one take. So, there was, like, the director slash cameraman and, like, the main actor and actress. And, like, they went through the actual city. Like, they rode the subway. Like, they went to all these real locations, like, just normal, like, you know, as the day was going on. And then, like, there would basically be, like, you know, quote-unquote actors, plants, like, in these real-life locations. And, like, I would have thought we would got, like, more shit like that being made nowadays than what we get. You know what I mean?
0: hmm
1: But, yeah, just interesting to think about. Okay. So I'll try to be a little more smoother with my transition to (laughs) now me taking my the last time. But yeah, so number four, and this is like another thing, because like, you know, especially doing this podcast, it gets me thinking about things, Trev. I'm wondering if movie marketing was like when I was a kid compared to now, I wonder if movie marketing was like more powerful, more well thought out or whatever, because I swear, dude, when this movie came out, I was anticipating it for months and I couldn't wait. And, like, you you probably wouldn't imagine it. But, yes, a five-year-old goat was very excited. Like, almost like it was, like, the next, you know, Star Wars movie or something. I could not wait to jump in the theater and witness for myself uh, Paul Schrader's version of Cat People. Um,
0: I was hoping that was all leading to, like, eating Raul. But...
1: <laughs> oh, that would have been even better. <laughs> but, yeah, dude, I was – and I want to say Fangoria probably, you know, it probably wasn't even so much, like, the movie marketing. Actually, I think it was a combination of Fangoria and the David Bowie uh, song "Cat People" that was great song. Yeah, heavy rotation. Tarantino likes that song too, as you know. Um, But yeah, so like "Cat People," very strange film uh about a uh a young girl played Nat- natasha kinski and as a kid this is that's why i say it's weird that a little kid was into this movie because it's a very pretty much a completely erotic movie but to mm. me i was just fascinated by the the oh like oh there's a lady or there's people that can you know transform into like you know jaguars or panthers whatever they were so it's like yeah it's like this race of people that can turn into a giant cat. Like, I can't remember. Like, what are they? They're like Black Panthers, right, Trev?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, black, they can transform into Black Panther, and this happens when they become sexually aroused. So the answer to this, so they don't always kill their lovers or boyfriends or husbands or whatever, is you have this uh, this young woman, Natasha Kinski, uh, goes to live with her brother, Malcolm McDowell, in New Orleans, and uh, his answer is, like, they're just going to have sex with each other, you know, and that way they, you know completely incestuous but at least they won't turn into cats and also too trev like weirdly enough like the thing that really caught me like whatever was those weird flashback scenes that are like out in that mystical desert that show in ancient times how like the humans worship the cat people and stuff so like yeah like a very and i, I want to say if i'm not mistaken i think this movie was like a pretty notorious flop wasn't it trev
0: um, I believe so. Yeah. I don't I'm yeah. um, looking at let's see here. Budget of twelve million, box office of twenty one. I mean, oh, you know, back then bad. I guess that's it's okay, bad. but yeah. yeah.
1: But yeah, and it's it's just a movie that really faded from like uh recent memory. And I got back into it, believe it or not, Trev, when uh it like Universal when there was the hd dvd Blu ray war, for a little bit of time Universal got like um I don't know what you call it, like a kickback to to really like Go Heavy. I can't remember if they were exclusive on HD-DVD, but, like, basically what they did was they just dumped their whole old-ass back catalog. So I, I bought, like, a disc, like a $5 HD-DVD version of Capu, and thankfully recently it came out again on Screen Factory Blu-ray. So, like, yeah, I have been rocking this for, like, a good 15-plus years now. I've been really revisiting this movie, and I don't know, man. It's, it, again, it's, it's kind of one of those things, too, now as an older person. It's not just the pure nostalgia of loving his kid, but now as an older person, it's really... um the directorial style and the mm-hmm. cinematography and uh you know don't want to give too much away if anybody hasn't seen it yet but like i i love love the ending to this movie the conclusion of this movie and the the feeling that you know once the credits roll up the feeling it gives you it just i'm just a sucker for endings like that so yeah cat people is number four for me i still love it
0: yeah, I'm glad you chose that one. That was one that I thought about. Like, is there any way I could justify it? And, I, and I, I couldn't, but this is a movie I like a lot. Um, you know, I know some people often like it's one of those weird ones where I, I it, this, uh, well. People kind of I don't know why people have been bothered comparing it to the original in a way, you know, like it's you know, it's technically a remake, but I mean, it's really doing its own thing. Right. Um, and I yeah, I love the original, too. But I think this this is just like you said, it's like a very it's a very beautiful story. Um, I feel like this and The Hunger, the Tony Scott movie would make yeah. a great double feature oh, yeah, yeah. Um, of that kind of like just erotic horror that was being done really well around this time um with you know very attractive people i mean natasha kinski is just gorgeous in this movie (laughs) Um, oh
1: and and when malcolm mcdowell takes his clothes off i mean it scorches the screen when you say
0: (laughs) well it is a fun way to like uh for people just like you know recognizable faces going back to watch movies like this too you know you'll get like uh ed begley jr and uh you know john hurd showing up in this and yeah so yeah it's a a good one so i'm glad you picked it
1: yeah for sure love But yeah john hurd man he's kind of underrated in all honesty but uh yeah. But yeah, so what, what you got rocking on your list next, Joe?
0: Well, my number three is speaking of, um, you know, horror films that are remakes uh, almost in name only, uh, or, you know, and uh, the discussions about how much are they actually based in the original, is, uh, you know, a Stone Cold classic that was not respected at the time, but nowadays is kind of thought of oftentimes as one of the best horror films of all time, and that is John Carpenter's The Thing. Um, you know, not my favorite Carpenter film, but... Um, one of my favorite films of 82. So I guess that counts for something. Uh, this, this, uh, again, this is a movie where this is kind of one where I, I've always liked this movie, but I do feel like as you get older, you appreciate this movie even more than you did originally. Cause you know, when I was young, I think it was just kind of a fun, like monster movie, but I remember being young and watching it and kind of being a little bored during like the first half hour or so, you know, like wanting it to get to the, like, well, get to the good stuff and I think once you get a little older and a little more refined, you appreciate the whole film and just yeah. the that like that aching sense of isolation that is so important to establish first before you get into the mayhem. And how it's like it clearly affects all these characters going in and how it adds to the paranoia and just then, uh, you know, loving all these characters. these They're just all so distinct, you know, for a movie that doesn't really have the time or even like kind of. Um, I don't think it just has the want to like really heavily establish giant backstories for these guys. It, it realizes it doesn't need to, and this is what Carpenter is really good at, right? Of just actually making distinct characters with their personalities come through, through the action and through how they react to these events. Um, and of course the effects, the Rob Bottine effects are just, you know, again, every time I watch this movie, it's, you're just, your mind is blown by them. Um, and how much better that is than the CG junk we get nowadays in that, that regard. Is. Um, yeah, just again, you talked about like mood and atmosphere, and this one is just full of it. Uh, another movie has a perfect ending, I think. I'm so, I I don't know about you. I, people love to debate this ending, and that debate is just so boring to me because yeah.
1: the, it,
0: the ending is just perfect, like the way it is. Like the 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 um the unanswered question of the ending is what is interesting, not trying to figure it out. So uh, yeah, I don't. I mean, I could like I'm not gonna say anything about the thing that hasn't been said before, but this this movie fucking rules. So.
1: Yeah, I I gotta say this this was the main. This is not on my list, Trev, and it made me much hurt. Right? Yeah. Oh, it made me question my say. And to be fair, it was like that thing where it's like it wasn't even a question. Like, oh, it doesn't fit it because I'm like I'm looking and I'm like I'm like there. Most of these movies on my list, they're, they're they're not even in the same class as the thing, but like. I don't know if it's because I've seen it so many times, or like I can't even really like it. it would like no kidding? It was I'm looking at my paper. It was number three on my list, and I crossed it out for another movie. And it was just like it was that thing of like it, it, it's 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 kind of the perfect movie. Mm-hmm. And like yeah, like I I. I do know why I did put it on my list, but i I question that like even up until like you know the second we hit record. but uh one thing I wanted because I knew for sure it was going I think that's kind of why I could justify to taking it off mm-hmm. my list, Trev is I knew a hundred percent you would have it on your list i just I just knew in my bones. but I gotta ask you, um, do you think the thing has the best special effects of all time?
0: the best creature effects of all time yes yeah, yeah. But, but practical creature effects there's there's no doubt there's that's not even yeah that's not even a question i mean this is this is the top i mean it's never i don't it won't be topped right it just it, it hasn't been and it won't be um the the amount yeah. of work and just like the creativity of what they came up with and just those designs um how much of it is like super like how it's, it's so memorable it it treads that line so perfectly of being Terrifying, but also just really compelling and interesting to look at, and also sometimes even funny. Like the head with the spider legs is amusing, you know, but also yeah. still creepy. I don't, I mean, Rob, Robo deserved like 20 Oscars for this. Um, he, but, he should yeah. still
1: be receiving Oscars for us every yeah. year. Yeah, <laughs> it was... also
0: has like, and this goes to like Carpenter as a director. Um, yeah. this movie has a particular uh jump scare uh involving uh, a blood test that is yeah. just like it's, how crazy is it that like I've watched this movie so many times and that makes you jump every time and that just that just shows you how like how good the staging of that moment is and like the you know the pacing of it and the editing uh yeah just stuff like that is why I love coming back to this movie because I I am going into that scene I'm like oh that's coming up oh it got me again you know
1: yeah like like uh this I I remember specifically uh walking out of the theater to this movie and I remember it was like Probably the first and one of the only times when I remember me and my dad walking out and being like, you know, cause like, cause like we weren't the types, like we never talked during the movie, you know, we we, we weren't like that. Uh, so we would always, you know, afterwards, like, like usually we would, we'd go eat after the movie and then that's when we would talk about the movie. But I just remember, like, us walking out, and it was, like, one of those things where it was summer, and it was, like, broad daylight. And it was, like, that shock of, like, you know, being in a cold theater in this Arctic setting and then walking out into the summer sun. But I remember us just being, like, one of the few times we were absolutely completely blown away by a movie. Like, we didn't even know a movie could be that, like, tense and intense. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. it was just totally, completely blew Like, it's one of my most fondest uh, uh, memories of uh, going to see a movie like that. And so like, let me
0: ask you then, Goat, because uh, this is something that I've always, I don't think we, you and I have ever talked about this. Um, what do you think is the deal with? Because, you know, there are a lot of movies that are not, they don't get the, the acclaim and the respect they should have in their time. And they built right. that over the years, right? And usually I can kind of understand that. But what's the deal with how bad this movie was reviewed when it came out? I can never wrap my head around that. I just like when you look at how vicious yeah. the the initial reviews were, it's so strange to me to think that all these critics how could you look at this movie and and see like a piece of shit like they treated it? It's just it's bizarre.
1: You know you know I like I always wondered about why the box office was as poor as it was on it and then and then I kind of just came around to be like it just kind of was a bad time to release the movie type of thing. You know what I
0: mm-hmm. mean? It's a pretty nihilistic film.
1: But for the critics, th- this is the conclusion I came to, in all honesty, is I think they could not give credit. A, I like, you know how we were talking about, like, the Dario Geno, like, tracking shot. Is it too much? Is it masturbatory? I think, A, the critics, like, thought that, like, kind of like how horror for a while devolved into torture porn. I think I think they were offended by this movie because they thought horror was going to go, like it was like the the train had left the station and we had long left like Bella Lugosi and Boris Karloff behind and 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 like classic horror. And I think mm-hmm. they were afraid we were going to go into this ooey gooey. Let's see how much weird creature bullshit we can you know because like this is post Alien and everything like that. And and they, they're probably thinking like. It's just going to keep going in this like masturbatory effects thing. And also, too, I think another thing that made them not really want to grab onto it was there was that thing where it's like you're introduced to like, you know, however many is a dozen guys, 20 guys, whatever. You don't know a whole lot about them. And it's like when the movie ends, because we basically have, you know, a 10 little Indians not getting knocked off one by one type of scenario here. Is I think the critics probably didn't like that nobody really had an arc and nobody came out of it with like a lesson learned or a or you know a, 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 an uplifting thing. I think definitely the nihilism for sure, but also too that like nobody really quote unquote changed in this movie. And I think if you look at like traditionally critics, like I feel like they're always looking for that character arc in films.
0: Yeah. Yeah, oh, that could be it i mean I, i'm glad that they came around you know because you see lot like those things you were just talking about obviously we all appreciate those things in a film but then you see how certain stories don't necessitate them and yeah. just like you said the, the tension and just the uh, god what would i do in this situation kind right. of storytelling it just allows you to just throw it in you don't need to spend an extra half hour uh <laughs> showing all these characters writing home you know learning more about them that's that's not the point you know
1: so um So I got to ask you, Trev, and this is the one thing is, you know, the debate about the ending, Mm -hmm. that was never a consideration like for me personally, like, you know, as a person who saw this movie and, you know, was always a fan of it. I didn't even think that like that, that debate that's going on about it. Like I, I, that never entered my mind. Like,
0: yeah, I got actually really annoyed when Dean Cundey kind of stepped in and said, like, here's the answer. Right. It's like, dude, shut up. (laughs) You know, like that. Yeah yeah
1: like i almost like i find it real hard and for anybody who just you know isn't real familiar with what we're talking about it's basically um you know the movie ends with two characters and you know they're pretty much in a you know there's no hope for rescue or escape at that point it's basically uh the debate is you know which of them is the thing Mm -hmm. whereas like I never even thought any of them was the thing, or, or did I, did I not care, because they talk about, you know, it's just gonna wake up in the ice later, or whatever, like, to me, like, like, I always, like, me personally, like, I'll just go ahead and say it, give my opinion, to me, they're both human, but all those, like, pieces, or whatever shit that's been burned up, or chopped up, or whatever, to me, no matter what, there's some piece of the thing somewhere in that camp that's, going to survive as an organism that's how i always viewed it
0: yeah i've always looked at it like you know i kind of had the same opinion especially when i was younger of like i think the 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 sadness of the ending is that i looked at it the same way where i felt like neither of them are the thing but they're they're both gonna die anyways and they're gonna both die thinking the other one is the thing you know and like and just having like no comfort in those in those final moments, and I, that to me is like what is like so powerful about that ending. And you know, I, I'm I'm bummed this never got. I mean, obviously later it got like the weird um, sequel prequel, um, which I'm not going to talk about. But um, you know, like, come I, on, I, let's talk about. It. <laughs> no, 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 we're good. But um, Jeez. But uh, you know, I've I've definitely looked into some of the sequels that didn't happen. And one of the like one of the reasons I'm kind of happy some of those sequels didn't happen, even though some of them did sound kind of cool is they all answered that question you know like you always had to start the film going back to the camp and finding those bodies and i know like one of the sequels that you know one of the the scripts that was heavily in development revealed oh no it was macready macready was the thing and it's just like i see if you have to start your movie answering that question then you're already taking something away from the power of the previous movie
1: yeah i i agree with that i'm i'm not a fan of um you know, when there's like original movie that has some element of mystery or whatever. Like I'm never a fan of um you know, a sequel that comes and says, Oh, this is this is the official version of what happened and especially when it's not like the original creator doing the sequel answering that question type thing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, one thing I one thing I did want to and I always say this every chance I could get because I, I don't think this is as well known. Um, one thing I will say in defense of the filmmakers of the weird whatever sequel, prequel version of the thing is yeah. they actually did film all yep. practical effects. And it was yep. the studio who I don't even know if they took control or they forced them. or what, But the studio said, no, no, it's all going to be CGI. So they literally put CGI in the movie. That was like literally just covering up the real effects that they did. And and the only reason I bring this up, it was Studio ADI, I think is the name. And uh, uh, what's their names? Woodruff and uh, Gillis? Gillis, yeah. yeah. They have a YouTube page where you can go and see all the the behind-the-scenes... a video where you can see all the behind the scenes stuff and all their other videos are cool too, but you can see like the actual creations for that movie. If you're a fan and you want to see that, Yeah, And so. it
0: is, it is good. I, I agree yeah. with that. It's interesting to think of like what, what the reputation of that movie would be if that stuff had been left in. I, I think we would be, we would be more charitable towards it. I think the, the general rep would be, well, that's like an okay, iffy like math film, but at least the effects were cool, yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know? And instead now it's, it's kind of got nothing to nothing to really pull you back to it.
1: Yeah, like, like, like I didn't hate it the way a lot of people did, but one thing I will say is, like, I wish Hollywood would learn the lesson, Trev, that you can't make prequels that are bigger in scope and scale than the film that comes after it, because <laughs> then it's like, you can't go from, like, like uh, the Thing prequel has this big, whatever, epic action movie finale... And then, and then you, you know, pop in the DVD of Kurt Russell's uh, John Carpenter to the thing, and then it's this small, contained little movie again. You know what I mean? Like, it's it doesn't really work uh, as a... You
0: know. Yeah, I mean, the only way it works is if it's something like Star Wars, where, yeah. I mean, despite what Lucas says, I I still feel that, that the proper viewing order is watching 4, 5, and 6 in the prequels. Mm-hmm. But the thing kind of doesn't work that way, right? Like, it's not. Yeah. It's, it's not... As has a prequel. It's not its own thing enough, no pun intended, to feel like it needs to be watched second. You know what right. I mean? So, yeah, it's it's just, I agree with you. It's just, it's just, a, it's an odd film. Yeah, it's
1: very, very, you know, kind of interesting to think about. But I definitely understand, you know, the ire that it gets. So, yeah. So, number three, the movie that I replaced the thing with that I crossed out is actually from the the, the same studio, uh i'm going to go with fast times at ridgemont high trev nice and i don't know why i always thought that movie was from 83 but when i looked at the 82 list uh yeah again um this was a movie the studio did not believe in and like they didn't even know if they wanted to release it and thankfully the limited release worked and worked and people went you know see it but i love fast times at ridgemont high i want to say I, you know, I'd seen the movie as, as a youngster. Uh, I don't think I saw it theatrically, but I think I saw it years later on TV and it was really like, as soon as that, uh, special edition DVD came out, I became a regular watcher of it. And I, I, I did get to see it, uh, maybe uh, probably like seven or eight years ago now at a classic screening. So I have seen it on the big screen. Thankfully, this is just like in a weird way, even though it doesn't try to be a great movie, uh, it just feels like a great movie, and 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 there's kind of like this more recent thing because for years and years the one thing people always remember about Fast Times was um, Spicoli and the humor, and then people say, well, you know what? It's it's actually not really a comedy, so it's you we gotta admit. It's, it's like well, yeah, it's it was always going to be a teen drama with uh, Spicoli as the comedic relief. That's how I always saw it because you know they, it it goes from everything, uh, you know, it goes all the way up to teen abortion. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a pretty heavy film for what it is, and it. But I but I like it a lot, and uh, I think it's one of those things too, Trev. Like I think it's one of the most perfect time capsule movies because it was written by somebody, Cameron Crowe, who was really young, and it was directed by somebody, uh, Amy Heckerling, I think, who who also was you know like it it wasn't like somebody who was in. Um, You know, it wasn't like those movies made in the 70s that were all about being in a high school in the 50s. You know what I mean? Like, it was literally about, like, the early 80s. Probably, I'd say, late 70s, early 80s time period. I think it just encapsulates really well. Plus, with the iconic music tracks and everything. But just an amazing cast, man. Like, everybody was awesome in it. Like, even at the end, like, the bit players, like uh, James Russo, when he runs in and, uh, tries to rob the Seven Eleven. it's just, it's, or I guess technically it's like Mighty Mart, but the fake Seven Eleven or whatever, but yeah, yeah, I, I love Fast Times at Ridgemont High, and for, for it being this little shoestring movie with no name stars, I mean, obviously everybody became a star afterwards, but, uh, yeah, I, th- I think it's an amazing movie, and, uh, it kind of sucks that it's just the Spicoli movie now, but, uh, I, th- I think it's endured for, I-, I think it does have some true fans, so, yeah.
0: Oh, it's, I mean, it's uh, Criterion just uh, selected it, that's getting yeah. a Criterion release, so, yeah, um, I'm, yeah, I, I I also, for whatever reason, I, I, when I was a teen, I think I always assumed this movie came a little later in the 80s, for whatever reason, um, and when I last revisited it, and saw, you know, how early it was in the 80s, it really sold to me of like, I've always thought it's like a, it's a good comedy. Right. But, um, this is kind of what you are getting at. Good. I, I think you would agree, like watching it, knowing where it actually falls in the timeline. The, everyone talks about this movie being good. I don't think this movie gets talked to enough about how this is one of the most influential comedies of all time. Yeah. Because basically every high school comedy that follows for the rest of the eighties has the DNA of fast Times Regiment high. It's, it's like, this is definitely a, one of the most replicated movies ever. Um, There's just so many movies that follow in its wake that are trying to do that same thing. Um, And even some of them, you know, movies I quite like. And you get into something like uh, like Days of Confused, which is one of my all-time favorite movies. Um, That that movie wouldn't exist without Fast Times Ridgemont High. You know, Um, So, yeah, seeing that DNA kind of also, you know, uh, so inform uh, an entire genre to follow. And I think it it should get talked about in that regard a little bit more, too.
1: I mean, obviously, a lot of things are probably, you know, almost in a way... Happy coincidences, but like, I always feel like there's like such a weird, like, cosmic um linking in the way that like Universal made and released both Fast Times and Dazed and Confused. Cause it's like, talk about, t- like, that's a talk about that's an amazing double feature right there, you know? Yeah. And I, I'm 99% sure it was the same casting director, blanking on his last name, but his name's Don, maybe Don Phillips is his name but it's like yeah yeah yeah. i mean it's just like and that's another thing like i always think about trev is like when you go back and you watch movies that like you know because there's there's a lot of movies like that star unnamed actors who never became big names but like when you can find those movies where it's like four or five of the, the cast who like they were complete nobodies and then like they went on to have great careers like like, th- that's like lightning in a bottle when you have, like, a great casting director like that, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously on a lesser level, but, like, yeah, just, like, even something like even Mall Rats or something, like, I feel like that's a lost art, like, casting is a lost art, like, because it's, it's now, it's, like, film is so predicated, even when you make a cheap movie, even when you make, like, a five million dollar movie, like, you have to have those names, you know, usually from TV, but you have to have those names, and yeah. I miss the days when some of the shit, because it's always fun to go back and um, see actors like before they were known for what, you know, like it's a perfect example is uh, Sean Penn and Spicoli. It's like, it's like, w- would Sean Penn have made that same movie two or three years later when his career was, you know, a little more established? I don't, I don't think he probably would have taken that character on, you know, but.
0: He yeah, I mean, it's 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 strange to think today that he did it all, you know, yeah, like the, exactly. to wrap your head around, you know, what we know of his John Penn today and look at Spicoli. That's that's also still always gonna be one of the more fascinating things about that movie.
1: You know, another thing that's weird, too, Trev, I, I was curious if you ever seen any of this on reruns or anywhere, but there was a very short lived Fast Times TV show a couple years later. Um, and I want to say, if I'm not mistaken, they brought in
0: uh, Dean Cameron to play
1: Spicoli. Did you ever
0: see this? You no, know, I think I knew like a little bit about it, but I, have, I haven't thought of that in like a long time. That was definitely a th- I mean, um, that was a tr- that was a fad for quite a while of like yeah. these like uh, taking movies and turning them into TV shows. You know, did you know that there was a Delta House TV show, like an Animal House sitcom? No, 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 Yeah, no. And it, it has some of the some of the cast members from the movie come over. Obviously, not all of them. Mm-hmm. But I remember, you know, like the Ferris Bueller show and yep. an Uncle Buck sitcom starring Kevin Meany. <laughs> you know, and just like, uh, oh, this made money as a movie. Let's just like, let's just definitely like run this into the ground. But do, do you remember at the time that
1: the Ferris Bueller TV show came on? It was like also around the time Parker Lewis Can't Lose came on, which yeah, was like yeah. a very almost like a Ferris Bueller ripoff. And I remember watching them both. And I ended up, even though I liked the guy, I want to say it was Charlie Schlatter who played Ferris Bueller on the TV show, even though I liked him. I thought Parker Lewis was like a way cooler and hipper. Oh, it show. is. That
0: was I remember. That was the talk at the time. It was like, yeah. oh, wow, that's so crazy that Parker Lewis is the better Ferris Bueller show than Ferris Bueller. I, I would it. heavily encourage anyone listening though, if you don't know what we're talking about though, go on YouTube and watch like the first ten minutes of the Ferris Bueller pilot. Yeah. It's it's something else. Like the theme song is so bad, it's funny. Um, <laughs> Jennifer Aniston plays his sister. That's interesting yeah. to see, but. The the cockiness of that show it literally starts with go if you remember this uh, the 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 Ferris Bueller in the show pulls out a cardboard cutout of Matthew Broderick as Ferris Bueller and cuts it in half with a chainsaw oh my basically God. saying like I'm the actual Ferris Bueller. <laughs> I'm the and
1: real like, Ferris
0: Bueller <laughs> yeah and like right there you're like oh you just you just signed your death warrant essentially for the show but,
1: when he uh, when he uh, cut the thing in half was Gunnar H- Hansen leering in the bushes nearby <laughs> <laughs> <It> should have been <laughs> Talk about a true Hollywood chainsaw hooker, jeez!
0: But so, I do remember that the the, uh, the principal um, was played by Richard Reel, who's a character actor I quite like. Oh, really? And, uh, yeah, Richard Real. The... Uh, at least he's less problematic than Jeffrey Jones. So
1: yeah, I, I I gotta say, you know, I know everybody's like, oh, the the principal, whatever, from Ferris Bueller. You know, the movie that the uh, the Jeffrey Jones shenanigans really kind of like put a damper on for me was actually uh, Howard the Duck.
0: I mean, it's a lot for me. Like, I will yeah. flat out admit, like, until finding that out about Jeffrey Jones, I was on record as being a Jeffrey Jones fan. He was like one yeah. of those actors who you I always were him. like, you were always happy to see him and stuff. And then and, and yeah. knowing what we know now, it's it's a bummer because he's a, he's a big part of a lot of movies I love. Wasn't he
1: the wasn't he the dad and mom and dad save the world or something like that?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, he's great. Yeah, um, I mean, mm-hmm. Beetlejuice, you know, Ed Wood, uh, yeah. obviously, like a lot a lot of that Tim Burton stuff. Uh, and then he was great in Deadwood. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. but. Oh well. Yeah, I was I was checking out
1: uh, Abel Ferrara's New Rose Hotel last night and I was like, Oh yeah, I kinda forgot that this lady <laughs> that this lady is infamous now. But like yeah, that's uh that, that's uh that's a weird thing. But then again, you know, uh I guess I'm a hypocrite because I like I, you know, popped in the freshman recently and I was enjoying Matthew Broderick and was not thinking about him killing people on the roadway in Ireland, mm-hmm. so you mm-hmm. know. I guess uh, you know, it, it, it's weird how some things bother you and stick with you, and some things don't. I guess I don't know.
0: Well, I think it's always been that thing for me where the stuff you liked before you found out about it, you'll just you'll you'll just always like, you know? Yeah. Um, you can't really walk away from it, um, and then it's more a question of how interested are you in new material from those people?
1: Yeah, I know, I know exactly what you mean. I know exactly what you mean because obviously not nearly as heinous as a manslaughter or a you know other heinous things but just like people who like uh oh i I guess a a tradition you know just like like i've been i would say lately but in the last whatever pandemic time i've just been coming across a lot of great 80s james woods um movies Mm -hmm. that 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 uh you know whatever and just like when i when i watched his movies from back then i'm like i never thought he would turn into like this super controversial figure like I just so I mean I knew he was like a pretty weird actor guy but like I never thought he would turn into you know and like all the mm-hmm. weird shit and and I never wanted to hear so much about how supposedly giant his penis is or whatever. <laughs> but you know what I mean It's just like like it's like that thing of sometimes like almost like people you like for a certain reason and like, like he was always like, you know, especially some of his films like Cop and Bestseller. Like he plays like a a, a cocky prick, and you never think like, oh, that person's just like twenty years from now, thirty years from now, is just going to become a caricature of uh, the characters that he used to play. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. So yeah, sorry, that, but I don't know. It's like a stream of conscious when you talk when you think about old shit. You're like, you're yeah, no, no. Like,
0: well, it wouldn't be one of our episodes without some kind of tangent. So yeah, that's true. So, Trev, what do you got next on your list? Yeah, I'll get us back on track here. Uh, so, my, so my second, um, I don't know how you feel about this film, but I'm not sure we've ever talked about this franchise in general or the, or this particular entry. But uh, this is uh, my number two is uh, Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan. Uh, my my favorite Trek film by far. I think that's you know you know, usually fairly the general consensus. Um, but this is a very interesting film cause, uh, you know, as a I, I'm a star Trek fan up to a certain, up to a certain point. I'm not into any like the new Trek stuff or whatever, but, uh, my fandom really started with the movies. I definitely saw more of the movies before I went and started diving back into the show. Um, but also when we were young, you know, next generation was on, I'd seen more of that than anything with the original cast. So I, I really knew the original cast primarily from the movies. And this is one that was on cable a lot. And, uh, And it was just when I was a kid, this movie was like so thrilling. I thought this was like as good as it gets in terms of action. And it's it's funny to sit down and watch it now. And obviously, I think this would probably younger generation wouldn't call this an action movie. But to me, it still is thrilling. Maybe that is just the nostalgia. But it certainly is these two incredible characters. Right. This is I mean, William Shatner at his best as as uh, Kirk. I know it's very in vogue to make fun of William Shatner's acting style and just say he's not a great actor. But when he, like, when he really lays into it, I, I think he does have a, a particular skill. And I think Kirk is a great character. And he's really at his best in this film. And then to give him just such a pure nemesis uh, of Ricardo Montebaum just having the time of his life as Khan. One of my favorite like, on-screen villains ever. Because he's just like... Talk about chewing scenery. He's just devouring it. Um, and he's just in this battle of wills between the two of them. You know, there's two characters who never appear on screen together in this movie. And yet you still... Just see them, you know, in your head, you just think of these two as like, oh, that's the one This like this eternal kind of, uh, you know, uh, enemy kind of relationship. Uh, The ear things freaked me the hell out when I was a kid. That's a that's an image that sticks with me and still grosses me out and uh, is upsetting. Uh, just the fun of, you know, it, this is like really the first time they ever really established Star Trek as kind of naval battles in space and just how how well done that's, that is. But I, the reason I say it's an interesting film also is I also acknowledge this, this movie is so important in Star Trek history because this is the point where Star Trek really changes and goes on a different trajectory. Because, you know, Gene Roddenberry was very instrumental in the first Star Trek film, which people did not react very well to. And control was kind of wrestled away from him on this one and was given over to the director, Nicholas Myers, who is on record as being not a Star Trek fan and had never watched the show. And it's, it's interesting then that, you know, the movie he makes is actually a, a direct sequel to an episode of the original series. But he takes that and he instead decides decides to put like a little bit more action in it, get it to be a little bit more philosophical and not just, you know, what what Roddenberry had been doing with the uh, everything is peachy keen in the future kind of approach um, yeah, and I get it, it, it sends the movies in a different direction. I think it really informs Star Trek in a way that ultimately maybe ended up being a little negative, but this was when it was still, um, Nicholas Myers really treaded that line really well. And I know there's been some talk recently about how apparently he has a new idea for a Star Trek film. That he's been pitching the studio and I think they'd be silly not to listen to him, uh, because this, this movie is just, is, is brilliant. And, uh, this is one I would put right up there with like Star Wars is like people, you know, that, that that dumb old debate of star trek versus star wars yeah Um, and people are always like star wars is better it's like okay but if you're a star wars fan watch this movie and tell me this isn't as exciting as star wars because it is
1: yeah so starting with um you know just just to have a movie to go see or whatever like starting with with this one like my dad took me to all the star trek movies um Mm -hmm. i want to say up and through damn i'll try you my my memory gets fuzzy on but we I think we saw all of the ones together in the theater all the way from part 2 all the way through the, like the new ones or like not the new ones but the the what do you call it, next generation ones. I think it was just that last one with Tom Hardy we didn't go see. Um but yeah, dude, like like th- I thought about putting this on my list. I like it. But uh, a couple years ago, I, I bought both of the box sets that have, the, you know, the original cast movies and also Next Generation. I, like, I've been slowly yeah. working, like, kind of, like, a couple times a year when I, like, I don't know quite what to watch. I go, oh, yeah, I got the Star Trek movies. So, like, yeah, like, I and just a, co- a week or two ago, I finished the fourth one, and, uh, yeah, dude, I really like the kind of, like, it's how it's almost a trilogy, Star Trek 2, 3, and 4. Mm-hmm. It's kind of yeah, like a there's, nice... There's actually line. been
0: DVD releases called the Star Trek uh, Motion Picture Trilogy that's 2, 3, and 4, and <laughs> just leaving the first one out. Yeah.
1: yeah, and and I gotta say, because cause I... Like, I remember it just kind of, like, being an entity in the video store and stuff. Like, I never had that, because uh, I didn't really watch it back then. I never had that, like, huge disappointment with part one that a lot of in, a lot of people... And then, like, there was, like, kind of the ones as we got older. I think probably when I was a kid, my favorite one was the one I just watched, part four. Like, we really liked that. We were, like how they went back in time. That was interesting and mm-hmm. all that. But, like, yeah, like, I kind of justified leaving this on my list because... It's weird, Trev, it's like, and I think we talked about this a while ago, but there's something about Star Trek when, like, you would never see now when you watch a a science fiction movie that, A, is very serious. I mean, like, I get it's outlandish stuff, aliens, crazy stuff, like, whatever, but it's done in a very grounded manner. And, like, I just love how old the cast was by the time they started making the movies, and honestly, like, it's nice to see adults star in movies. So, like, my justification for not putting, the, and I know Rathcon obviously is always... Always considered far and above the best Star Trek movie ever made, but it it doesn't feel that way to me personally. Like I, 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 like I've watched one through four over the last couple years, and it's like I love them all. Like I will, you know, like like especially because like how we said two, three, and four, such a through line. Like like to me, it's just it's just one chapter. So like, I mean, obviously there you know there could be some. I guess it's just like a Star Wars effect, dude. It's like I don't really well so episodes 1 through through 6 I should say Star Wars like they're all different, but I don't really like, you know. Even though I probably like a New Hope the best as a, a standalone movie, like I, I don't judge them against each other. So I was just kind of like, yeah, a Star Trek movie is going to end up on one of these lists for me eventually. But um, one thing I did, I was curious about because the box set I had, it's a little bit older. It was before they did that director's cut. Like, what, what, what's your take on the director's cut of Star Trek Two: Wrath of Khan? Which the preferred version? I've
0: never, I've never seen the director's cut. Okay. So I, I have a box set too, and the box set only has the original cut, and I've really. I don't know if I have much interest in checking out the director's cut. I guess I should, since I love this film so much and it's weird to think I don't, but it's, that's the thing is I, I've never felt like, um, it just feels so perfect. You know, like yeah. I, I'm worried, I'm, I'm worried about engaging with the director's cut in a way. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I guess maybe someday if, it, you know, if it was ever put in front of me, uh, it's just, I have no interest in like necessarily tracking it down and buying it. Cause I, cause I have the version that I love and that I can put on every time and watch. Um, yeah. so yeah, it would just be pure curiosity and like it, and availability that would get me to check out the other version.
1: Yeah. Like, like, like I'm with you. Like I couldn't really imagine. Cause like, like the one, the one thing obviously from Rathacon that I remember is uh, when we came out of the theater or in the theater or whatever, is that, that ear scene, it was Ugh. like, like, you know, for me, cause cuz I didn't see Alien in the theater and I wasn't really aware of Alien like really yeah cuz I remember I never saw Alien until after I saw Aliens in the theater so mm. for me for the what the chestburster was for a lot of people <laughs> that's kind of what the ear thing <laughs> the ear bugs were in wrath like we were just so like <laughs> like you know what i mean yeah when there's that, like a whole
0: generation of people i think are just so freaked out by things going in the ear and i, I track it back to this movie i think yeah, it's like when everybody was sure. saw this movie we young i'm also just really happy that i have on my list uh, both airplane 2 and this because again like airplane 2 is one of the first times william shatner you see him actually fully mocking his like kind of reputation and mocking his own acting style and having some fun with himself Mm-hmm. Um, which became like kind of a more of a go-to thing for him in the in the future. Uh, following that, um, but then you have Star Trek II, which I would put up there as probably his best performance, where he's, oh, like, yeah. he's really showing that no, 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 he's not just the joke. You know, like you, like give him like a great script and give him you know give Kirk like this really emotional through line, and he can pull it off.
1: So I I, I got to ask you because why not? We're talking about it. We might not talk about this for a while. And I recently you know with like uh the last 6 months uh I watched 3 and 4 um how do, how do you feel as a fan that they kill Spock and immediately bring him back
0: like that is that is one thing like even though I like the whole trilogy um you know and I as as you I like 3 I like 4 um not so hot on 5 but I love part 6 um and I even like the way they incorporate Spock into the 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 Abrams films well the first Abrams movie yeah. <laughs> um but, there is always going to be a part of me that wishes they just left him dead after the second one, because I think yeah. that sequence is just so well done and so emotional and so meaningful that to and if not, like you said, if if not, then the fact that it could have waited a few films or something, you know, right yeah. to go just to just go right into the search for Spock it it does take away a little bit of something. I, I agree. Um, so yeah, that that's always been like a little um bug in my butt about it. but you know. You know, it is what it is. I guess. Yeah. Like the thing uh, is, like people, like despite what people say, you'll you'll often hear people say, like, "Well, they clearly like chickened out." and That was not the plan. But watching mm-hmm. a movie, it's clear that that always was the plan because right. they do have the scene where he does the mind meld with Bones. You know, right. they they do show you him putting his memories into Bones' head. So it's uh, clearly they know they knew where they were going. But but still, I wish they had stuck with it.
1: Yeah, like it's it's very weird, and it's one of those things like, in years past. I always looked at it in a more cynical way in all honesty. And I looked at it as like they lost their nerve type thing, mm-hmm. but you know, especially watching three and four closer together. Um, it's like, and, and I do think three is interesting in search for Spock, the way they explain it and everything that happens and stuff. And, and, and they really do delay. Cause even by, even through, it's really the process of part four that he really kind of becomes like fully Spock again. Mm-hmm. Like, I, like, I think for me, at least now, is, is you know, l- revisiting these films or whatever. Like, seeing, like, if, cause if that was modern day now, dude, like, search for Spock, like, instantly he just would be back and he would be whatever and it would just be, like, the cheap and easy. The fact that they actually committed to making it a process over the course of parts three and four to actually, like, fully kind of, like, bring Spock, the character, you know, have him, like, whatever... Yeah. You know, however you want to call it, rebuild himself, whatever. Like, I'm okay with it. Like,
0: yeah. Well, we have we have proof of what you just said because when we get to J.J. J. Abrams' uh, second Star Trek film and him doing his stupid BS, uh, you know, we have Kirk dying and two minutes later being revived. Oh yeah, and, yeah. And just being, you know, and everything's fine, you know. And so they so they they couldn't even like stick through it to like another going into another film. You know, yeah. but, I I gotta
1: say like. I was on board with the first Abrams Star Trek. I like it a lot, yeah. And then part two, I'm not as low on it as people. I hate it. <laughs> yeah, I'm not as I'm not that low on it. But um, without going into a whole nother can of worms, like I'm almost in very close to being full on JJ J. Abrams boycott film. I mean his, I, I, dude, I, like, it, to me, I don't know, I don't know how to describe it, like, I, I've never seen a director of big movies, at least, you know, like, I don't care if I'm watching some ch- shitty, cheap Roger Corman, New World Pictures type thing, but of major studio films, I've never seen somebody pander so fucking hard, and also just be willing to say, oh, this happens just because it, just because I wanted it to happen, like, like, mm-hmm. it never earns anything, that motherfucker, <laughs> like, you know, and, and he turned around and he kind of did it with Star Wars. I mean, yeah, no,
0: I mean, that's I mean, I so I think with I, I like his first Star Trek film and I like his first Star Wars. And then yeah. the second ones he did in both franchises mm-hmm. are atrocious. And I think yeah. this has been said before, but I think he like what he's really good at is he's uh, he's obviously great at casting, as you yeah. see with the casts he put together for Force Awakens and for Star Trek. Right. Uh, he's a great visualist, you know, and he's very good at making sequences that are exciting. Like, that's what he's strong at. He, his his weakness is storytelling. When you expect him to tell the full story, um, he should be, he's just basically he's, he clearly should not be allowed to have that strong of a creative hand in the writing of his material. Um, and there are definitely stories about you know making Star Trek Into Darkness. How the other writers did not want that to be Khan, and they were saying like, no, no, no let's have it be this other villain, and him being like, no, it's got to be Khan. You know, Khan's right. the big villain. But then also doing his dumb mystery box thing with Khan, which adds nothing to the film and ends up just being a, a big detriment to it. Uh, yeah. Whatever. I don't want to. Do, this we
1: no, yeah. talk about JJ Abrams. But. No. Yeah. Yeah. But but I but I agree. It's like like he gives you like the weird like process homogenized fake version of shit because like a like leading into Star Trek Two, the Wrath of Khan like you you even know who Khan is before the, before you even seen the movie because he was on the TV show so it's mm-hmm. like the power of Khan in the original Star Trek two is. It's a fully realized performance by an amazing performance of Ricardo Monobahn. Having some other guy just be somebody else and then be like, Oh, by the way, I'm con yeah why would you think that would be like a powerful thing you know what i mean let's
0: think like like, you know they they had that more it's like and i my name is Khan. it's like but that means nothing to these characters so you're doing that you're doing that just for the audience and i I hate that kind of stuff
1: yeah it's bullshit all right well like yeah we we need to cover star trek in some way on here because i know we flirted around with the idea of it and doing this and doing that but we at some point we have to throw it into the mix here because every time we talk about it um i don't know i get more and more interested in it it's one of those things i think in a weird way uh they were just spectacle movies for me more as a kid and i think now like i finally get like the the interesting themes and shit that actually is what star trek is based on you know what i
0: mean Mm -hmm. yeah i think there's a lot of people and maybe you fall maybe you fell into this or, or still do fall into it i think there's a lot of people who to them they only care about the movies, right? So they, yeah, Star Trek is just a, it's just a movie franchise for them. And I, I think that, that especially gets tricky when you get into, like, Next Generation because I like those Next Generation movies or some of them, but yeah. – that the characters feel very different than they do in the TV show like they the movie's turned Picard into an action character which she's not at all in the TV show so you know it's it's two it's definitely two different beasts the the TV shows and the and the oh, film completely. franchises but i like them both
1: and, and you know like like i just happened to like star trek was still a thing on tv and reruns don't get me wrong but it it was it's not like now where there's like a network that's running it nonstop like they were very scattered like I never, yeah. you know I never could watch them beginning to end as a kid and like I don't even think I don't even think it was till like the really like late '80s that you you could like get it on videotape you know what I mean
0: yeah no the, no you're right the original when I was growing up too yeah the, the the original Star Trek was kind of hard to see on TV
1: yeah and then we were like we were all about next generation when it came on. Um but i want to say i only lasted like a season or so and i just fell off that first
0: season is pretty rough
1: yeah and it's 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 not even like um yeah like like i would even be curious to kind of revisit a little bit in all honesty but like i just couldn't stay with 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 like tv shows like that back then i just couldn't Mm -hmm. you know what i mean yeah but uh yeah love star trek can it keep going? You think? Like, 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 what, what, what? As I start about the movie franchise, can it keep going? I mean, I know the the Chris Pine version is pretty much dead and buried now, but like, like, what, what could they possibly do? Do you think?
0: I, I really think the key is that the, the thing they need to do with the movies is the thing that they've never been willing to do. I think you would need to at this point, especially where you have multiple Star Trek shows that I I guess are pretty successful on TV right now, right, or on their streaming service. Yeah. I think you need to further break apart the movie and TV world. And I think you need to just create a a separate Star Trek movie franchise in its own timeline with new characters and have that be what and and not be another like reboot and not be what the characters that are on the current TV shows. Just create a a brand new crew, come up with some new general pitch for the first film and then just run it from there. Uh, That's that's what I would do, Um, I think. As much as I like that first Abrams film, I think ultimately, and I like the third one, too, Star Trek Beyond, but I think ultimately, I think it was a mistake to go backwards like that um, and, and give us those characters again. I would have preferred brand new characters.
1: Yeah. I even have the collector's cup from Star Trek Beyond. I like it a lot. Yeah, it's good. I kind of want to get that poster. I know we keep ragging on, and I, if you hate Star Trek, you're probably hating this part of the show right now, but I kind of <laughs> want to get that poster. One thing I did like about J.J. Abrams' uh, mimicry bullshit is I like that poster for, I'm pretty sure, it's a Beyond, where they recreate the original teaser poster for Star Trek. You know what I'm talking about? Like, with the three colors? Oh, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah it's cool. I, might yeah, I think to, that was Beyond,
1: yeah. Yeah, I might have to get that if I ever get a big enough house to put posters up. So anyway, moving along. I won't have too much to say about this film. Because uh, we, uh, I covered it uh, about a year ago on the podcast. But, dude, I have fallen all in love again, all over again, Trev, with uh, the original Poltergeist film. I love this movie, man. Um, always loved it. Loved it as a kid when I saw it. You know, got the Blu-ray, whatever, a few years back. And, uh, yeah, just, just re-watching it again for the show, man. Like, this isn't another one, like i i have the the nostalgic feels for it and all that Mm -hmm. but uh i'm just i'm just drawn into the uh the dynamic of the family the parents everything and again like i think this has some of my favorite um optical effects like the creatures that come through the the portal and like there's smaller puppets but they blow them up to you know on screen or whatever um uh, so, like, whereas I think The Thing, by far, I think, is the best practical effects. This is my, f- some of my favorite optical effects ever in the movie. But, yeah, don't need to say too much, but I, I love Poltergeist, Spielberg, uh, you know, has a Spielberg feel, with a little bit of Toby Hooper, with all the rotting skeleton bullshit. Uh, I don't know, dude, just, Poltergeist is, like, it's, it's the nice mix of, uh, horror, horror, and, like, Steven Spielberg, like, big budget, like i don't know i don't know what you would call it like like what would you call the spielberg feel of like jaws et Raiders, and all that like what would you really call that
0: like wonderment right Yeah. like that's like there's just something you'd like like wonder like is infused through his films um even in a film like poltergeist which is scary and isn't and is intense but there's still this sense of wonder um that of of, especially in the early sequences when they're just kind of having fun with the ghosts and, and things like that um yeah, and it's like another one where we talk about like debates that in, don't interest us. Um, good Lord, in the last few years, the, yeah. we got the the return of the stupid, who really directed this movie. Yeah. And and that's just, to me, again, this is – first of all, I want to say I'm super happy this is your number one because this is my number 11. This was the one that I had the hardest time leaving well, off. Well, this is actually my um, number two, Trev. Oh, sorry. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, but, um, but I'm glad it's on your list. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, because I, this was I, I was I was really it was I felt really weird putting Airplane Two ahead of this, <laughs> but yeah. it was ultimately more about where I like I said, Airplane yeah. Two is just like more nostalgic for me a little bit. Yeah. But um, but yeah, so the the debate about like was this a Toby Hooper film or did Spielberg secretly direct it? I mean, look, you look at this, William, like you just said, that that debate is meaningless because both of them are so in this movie this right. movie could only exist if both these guys worked on it you feel both of them and it's like you, you realize these two guys were working together and the best of both their worlds were coming were coming through um and yeah so that, that's all i have to say but like i love this movie too um i, I definitely i think of it as a toby hooper film but the spielberg influence is clear and i'm glad it's there right. because it creates this kind of like this awesome merger of their two styles um, well,
1: yeah Oh yeah, like like I mean, this is kind of the conclusion I came up with and kind of expressed on when we did the episode was, like literally, this is a movie Spielberg would have directed, uh, but he couldn't because of some contractual and scheduling things. So like basically, this was basically a movie where Toby Hooper was an employee of Steven Spielberg. So I just I just always saw it as a straight up you know. I don't know if it was literally fifty-fifty, but I consider it, you know, either creatively or whatever, a fifty-fifty. Uh, well, yeah, you know. and
0: that's. The, I think I think often when you hear people say, "Oh, there's no way this could be a Toby Hooper film," that's coming from people that think Toby Hooper only made Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Right, and I'm, I'm going to say something that is going to sound mean, but just give me a second to explain it. I, yeah. I think Toby. I think one of Toby Hooper's strengths is that he didn't necessarily have a very distinct directorial style. Correct. Right. I think he, instead he was somebody that would adapt his style to the project. And if you, if you look at text chance but then you look at life force and then you look at invaders from Mars, and then you look at something like toolbox murders later, I think you could easily see how poltergeist poltergeist could be him. Because like you said, right. once he's working in the Spielberg range, he's going to adapt to that kind of filmmaking style. So,
1: so yeah. So like exactly, exactly what you said. It's like, when I watch Poltergeist, like I do see the Spielberg influence, but I also see pieces, uh, like really strongly of both the Funhouse and Invader for Mars. Like mm-hmm. like 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 to me it's not that thing where they like you said, people are, like for some reason say, Oh, there's no way Toby Hooper could or whatever. It's just like, well I'm sorry, but like Steven Spielberg did not invent fucking kids in a suburb riding around on bikes and you know what I mean? And having Star Wars toys on their wall and shit. You know what I mean? Like like stop looking at it as such a microscopic thing and look at Toby Hooper's overall work. And it's like if anything, in all honesty, he made just as many movies he made more movies that were big and spectacle filled like Life Force, Poltergeist, uh Vaders from Mars, than he actually did low budget sh- grit you know, gritty horror like Texas Chainsaw. So it's like I don't know, it's just like the, the 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 guy the guy he kind of rode both worlds of the independent filmmaking and also like the big budget studio filmmaking you know unfortunately his canon films didn't do that well and they and they were i mean canon was always going to collapse no matter what don't get me wrong mm-hmm. but you know his big budget kind of misfires were that but i mean they're i i own them all on blu-ray i love them all so i mean yeah i think tuba Hooper's really underrated and it's like that thing of like you know I've seen it happen in recent years too with with directors like John Carper and George Romero, and I'm just kinda like, don't judge a a, a director on his only on his lesser works, you know what I mean, take it all into mm-hmm. account and say like, well,
0: and also don't judge them only on their first big breakout right right
1: yeah. Yeah. yeah i mean I always say judge a guy's career more on the quality than the quantity in terms of like even if a director has three or four bad movies, if he has one or two great movies, it's like that's that's actually more than most directors have. So, you know. so yeah, I love Poltergeist, man. So we're, we're coming in the home stretch, Trev. What, what do yeah. you have for uh, number one here?
0: All right, well, I can actually keep this brief because this is a film that was actually already talked about. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, but my number one um, is, of course, uh, Superman 2. No, sorry, that's a joke. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, <laughs> that's a callback. Damn, you recycling steps. them list, Trev. <laughs> so for for the listeners who don't know, uh, due to some internet shenanigans, I accidentally put Superman two on both my eighty and eighty one list uh, because apparently it was like shown one time December eighty somewhere, and yeah, so I got my wires mixed a little bit on that. But, uh, well, but no. well, the
1: the best part too is I didn't notice either.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, um, but no, my my real number one is uh, Blade Runner. Um, so uh, I am one of those guys who says uh, who actually prefers Blade Runner twenty forty nine. That that was my favorite film of 2017, but Blade Runner is my favorite film of 1982. So the thing is, I I love them both. Um, and to what you were saying earlier about you know oh some people talk about how like Blade Runner is kind of boring or you know the story's not super strong. Like I actually I get that, and I, I, there's a part of me that kind of agrees. Right, it's not the strongest story. I think I even have issues with the story. You know, when you ultimately think of the logic of it. You know, especially like the final scenes, it's like, well, why is Decker even still bothering looking for Roy Batty? If Roy Batty is just going to die in like 15 minutes anyways, it's it doesn't seem like there's a point to it. That's not that's not the thing about Blade Runner. You were you were kind of speaking this earlier ago. Blade Runner is a film I can put on at any time and just get pulled into that world. This is a movie you experience more than you watch. Um, Just the visuals of it, the tone, the music, all of it comes together in a way where I'm just completely entranced by it the entire time. It's like you want to you want to live in that city. You want to like you want to breathe that city in, you you know, you want to like touch it and smell it and see what that's really like. Because the production design is just so incredible, you know, and watching it, being very aware of how influential it was and knowing that you're seeing like the birth of basically like 90 percent of sci fi films that follow. Uh, So I'm actually kind of glad the story is kind of lackadaisical and slow moving because it allows you to just spend time in this world and kind of kind of float through it a little bit. And it's just, it's gorgeous. And like you said, that that Ridley Scott style, it's just, it's all on display. Um, yeah. And then, uh, you know, Harrison Ford's very good in it, but uh, Rutger Hauer, what a what a performance. Uh, you know, that the, the end of that movie is super emotional. Uh, it does get to me. Um, I love this. And one last thing I'll say about it is I love that I have, uh, I'm assuming you have this too, good. I, I love that I have the Ultimate Edition Blu-ray that has all the various cuts. Because yeah, ultimately, I, I, because ultimately I I, I I love that I have a that's basically like a film school in a box essentially or so at least looking at a very particular when people talk about how much can editing change a film it's really cool that I can actually just show them by saying here are four completely different versions of this movie just through like editing choices and kind of reworking things you know what is it like when you take out the voiceover what is it like when you change some orders around you know and I just love that uh, that's all available as opposed not to not to crap on George Lucas but. You know his whole thing of like not allowing the original cuts to be available of Star Wars. I love that Ridley Scott was more like, no, 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 let's make every version of Blade Runner available so people can see this evolution to where it finally got to what I wanted it to be. Um, that's that's really cool.
1: Yeah, I have uh, the whatever final cut Blu-ray, but I actually uh, have the whole set thing on HD DVD, and I. I'm kind of like whatever. I've watched clips of it, watched chunks of it, Trev. I've never watched the theatrical cut all the way through. Yeah, and and nice. I've always had a prejudice against it because I'm like, well, this is the version Ridley Scott kind of says is bullshit. Yeah, well,
0: what, Harrison what, Ford doesn't yeah. like it either. Yeah,
1: yeah. What what do you think? Should I let that? continue to take or should
0: i just take in a, a one-time viewing of the yeah i think if, i think if you love blade runner i think it's worth watching one time um yeah. and, and even if it's just to see like the last time i showed this movie to someone for the first time for them for, to introduce it to them um afterwards i was like okay you need to you need to see what this voiceover is like yeah. and we were both watching it and like laughing at it because it is it is really goofy and you can tell harrison ford doesn't want to be doing it he's been very yeah. open about that and it comes across in his vocal performance um, but yeah I think it's worth seeing once and and if you have the whole set to the the making of a documentary on there uh dangerous days is yeah. fantastic yeah
1: yeah I watched that about a about a year ago maybe a year and a half ago but like yeah like another reason I've never really gone into the theatrical cut and I was kind of surprised like I finally I kind of got curious about it because our, our good friend jelly who was just on this show recently I don't know if straight up if he prefers overall the theatrical cut but like i i if. If I'm remembering this correctly, I think he was saying, like, he misses the the voiceover or whatever. And I was always afraid of, of watching the version of the voiceover because Blade Runner is actually one of my favorite um, Harrison Ford performances. At least, mm-hmm. I guess, maybe genre performances. And I like the, like, the whatever, Director's Cut version. Like, I thought it was great kind of how understated he was and i didn't really want to hear like a narration that would explain his thoughts too much if that yeah, makes no, sense
0: no, it, 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 it is explaining too much there's moments where he's just sitting there and like they have the voiceover telling you what you're seeing on screen um you know giving you backstory to him that we don't need i think i want to say that jelly likes the voiceover ironically i okay. think that's the okay. case uh, i at least hope so because uh, it doesn't yeah. it doesn't add to me it, it detracts i definitely think like my go-to is the the final cut always yeah but I but I think it's very cool to have the different versions available. And this is another movie that ends on and again, this is like one of the first movies when I was younger of like clocking this, um, a movie that ends on like an interesting mystery. Um, and you know, unlike what we're talking about, uh, this is where I'll briefly give Blade Runner twenty forty nine credit, uh, which uh, as I said in the movie I love, they figured out the right way of like doing a sequel that brings up that mystery but still doesn't answer it, which I was very happy about because um, it's another one where you don't you don't really want the answer. So. And here you have a case where like Ridley Scott and Harrison Ford have both given different answers, which is fine, because to me that means like good, then they're still not an official one. Yeah,
1: Yeah, I I, I gotta say the answer that much like the, you know, the conclusion of the thing, the answer that Ridley Scott in recent years has given, that never crossed my mind ever when I ever the many times I watched the movie. So and and like, once he said that, I kind of see the clues that he's leaving there, that could be a possibility. But I st- like I just I I don't know I just I don't buy it 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 doesn't feel earned to me or it doesn't feel like at the very least like if even if that is a possibility that that would be definitive you know what I mean mm-hmm. the one thing the one thing I don't like and I'm curious what you it's like literally the only thing I don't like about the movie is isn't it that like uh, footage from the Shining they use at the end like when, when uh, the very end when they're driving away in the car or whatever uh, I don't know. Yeah, I thought it was. I don't know if it's on all the versions, but like, yeah. Anyway, I'll
0: the one t- thing I don't like is there's a scene where he uses like some um, you know future tech to uh, zoom into a picture, mm. and and then at some point he actually has it where the tech is able to turn a corner in the picture, and that's always bothered me because I feel like that even that breaks like the reality of like <laughs> that makes just no sense. <laughs> right. You know? like, right. Of, uh, yeah,
1: <laughs> but, that is weird, but yeah, I I, I love Blade Runner and um. Yeah, like, I have to say, like, and it's interesting that, that you're one of the people that you love it, but, but you like the sequel even more. I have a hard time grasping, if if in my, in my mind, if the sequel feels authentic or not. And I don't know if that's not because Ridley Scott didn't make it, but I think more than anything, and I've been kind of, I don't know, like, yeah, I don't
0: know. Well, Hampton Fancher wrote it. I mean, so it's you know Ridley Scott was definitely involved. Um, I think, I, I mean, maybe I see what you get a little bit. It doesn't have the same exact feel as Blade Runner, but again, yeah. I don't know if I wanted it to. Right. Um, you know, just the it, just the way you know, like you could say, does Aliens feel authentic to Alien because it's a different vibe? Right. But it is it's it's kind of the same thing of like Blade Runner twenty forty nine. I thought what I, what I find amazing about that film is it found a way to make what is. Uh, admittedly a more blockbuster version of Blade Runner, but I, I thought it I didn't think it sacrificed any of like the intelligence or the kind of deeper meanings. I think that's still in there. And I think yeah. that's why I love like Denny Villeneuve. I think he's that he's proven to be like really like with stuff like that and arrival. Um, he knows how to like perfectly find that balance of of heady ideas but still, uh, the kind of popcorn fare that draws in right. a mainstream audience as well. I mean, obviously it didn't work with Blade Runner 24-9 because it bombed, but right, you know, right. whatever. <laughs> well,
1: which, but she, but you know what, though? It's like in a weird way. I know we all think Blade Runner is this huge movie, but it's like, I think there's something weird and it's, again, with the, the studios trying to kind of mind the nostalgia, you know, ploy a little bit. But mm-hmm. I don't think it 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 really ever pays off the way they want when you make a sequel to a cult film that was a flop. Cause the same thing happened with Tron as well. They made like yeah. the, tr- the, the blockbuster modern day Tron legacy. And it's just like, dude, it's like nobody really liked this <laughs> 40 years ago. You know what I mean? And like with Blade Runner, I have to say, cause I do love Villeneuve too. Uh, it took me a long time to see the arrival. I finally checked it out on video. Loved it. Uh, saw prisoners in the theater. Love that. um, yeah, with with me, it's less, like, I don't think he prostituted the Blade Runner story. I don't think he made, like, a sellout version of Blade Runner. With me, it was just more, like, I almost question, like, in a weird way, the kind of, like, spiritual morality in making any sort of sequel to Blade Runner, if that makes sense. Like, to me, it was just, like, I guess maybe it was, like, one of those movies where it's, like, I th- I think I think it just maybe would have been stronger to just make one film. You know what I mean?
0: I mean, I guess I kind of get that, but I guess I, I ultimately do disagree. as they say it's a world I want to like live in more, and in fact, I've even like there's there's recently been a comic book called Blade Runner 2019 that I've been reading. Wow. Um, and, and I just feel like yeah, that's a world where um, you know, if, if there's so much you can not explore in there, and I'll I if they if they ever made another Blade Runner, I would definitely check it out again. I would watch a oh, Blade yeah. Runner show. You know, it's like a, yeah. it's just a world I think is worth exploring. Well, um. <sighs>
1: Let me ask you this question, because I think maybe this is where some of the roadblock is coming for me personally. Would you have easily, uh, do you think you, and again, this is like a what if theoretical question, but do you think you would have enjoyed Blade Runner 2049 just as much if uh, Harrison Ford or his character weren't in it at all?
0: I think so, especially since he comes in so late, right? Right. Um, Yeah, which I thought, which I also liked. I liked that the movie had like the, um, the kind of courage to not have him be front and center for the entire movie. Um, I'm sure partly that was knowing Harrison Ford. I'm sure that was partly his (laughs) decision as well. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I think I think he's used just the right way in it to where he's just peppered in enough at the end to to be that callback. But I do think I would have, because as I said, I mean, and not that a movie is the same as a comic book, but the comic book I was just reading, Blade Runner 2019, that's a, a story of an of a, of a, of a, a entirely new character, a different Blade Runner. Right. right? Just this like new story. And I, I think I would have I would have still enjoyed it. But I, I think it is nice that it does serve as a direct sequel and, and pays off some of these story elements.
1: Yeah, I think that maybe that's the problem with me is like, I do enjoy Harrison Ford's introduction, uh, the way they kind of introduce him in Blade Runner 2049. But like, yeah, I I think I would have preferred it if it was strictly about Gosling's character, but mm. whatever. I still need to watch it again. I've only seen it since in the theater, and it was kind of one of those things where I was kind of like, I just immediately wrote it off, like in my own personal head canon and it didn't exist. Um, and then also too, there was a let's be honest, it was a trend of mining every nostalgic sequel you can get, and thankfully that's kind of stopped. But uh, yeah, I I need to give it a revisit for sure. But yeah. <laughs> So yeah, now the moment of truth. And I feel like this is like going to be like the most after you did Blade Runner, this is like the most anticlimactic thing. But this movie, even though I always enjoyed it as a kid, always loved it. This movie has become a personal obsession with me over the last 10 years. Uh I literally buy as much merchandise as I could. I like literally over Christmas, I um I purchased six or seven new t-shirts uh with imagery from this film. Yeah, my number one film is crazy as is. I can't help it, Trev. Uh, I got a fever, and the only cure for me is more Halloween Three: Season of the Witch.
0: Cool. Yeah.
1: Again, it 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 can't. You know, it, it's nowhere near the class of um, something like Blade Runner, or The Thing, or even like Poltergeist, and all, honestly, but like to me, I think Halloween Three: Season of the Witch is one of the best kind of nourish B movies I've ever seen like I just love it and the the elements are so vibrant with the costumes and the whatever and the Connell Cochran and I was lucky enough I bought the novelization a few years ago before it got really super expensive been buying collectibles from it it's just like the one movie I never get tired of and even in like when I'm like not like you know you know, like I'm a little burnt out on actually watching the movie itself. I always um, you know, like I said, I'm always on the hunt for new collectibles and like I kinda love how this movie went from being universally hated to like I don't I don't know if you're like up to date with everything, but like this is like almost a cottage industry, Trev, of of re releasing these masks. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. I know. <laughs> Halloween three season which will not go away. I love yeah, it.
0: Yeah, no, no. In our in our lifetime it's gone from the- that's the crappy halloween nobody likes to what do you mean you don't like halloween 3 oh you're an idiot for not liking it just because michael myers is in it and and i'm very happy to see that shift
1: yeah exactly i love it i I could tell you how cool it is trev because atkins has sex with a young girl but i really don't even care about that part (laughs) i really don't
0: <laughs> now is there like because i i quite like halloween 4 uh, yeah. quite a bit and uh you know and i there's other sequels that you know have bits for me um you know i like some of h2o and yeah. but is there a part of you that does wish that halloween 4 had just continued this trend and that you know he would have they would have stuck to this i mean i think I, I think you and i have talked before about how like obviously the mistake was waiting till the third one to do it yeah um people would have accepted it i think better if it was the second film started this, like, oh, these are anthologies, but yeah. do you wish that they had kept with that and not ever brought Michael Myers back? Yeah, for sure, for sure. Because yeah, um,
1: yeah. I really loved 4, like, when it came out and you know, recent, you know, whatever, recent times. I won't say it's lost its luster, but I kind of see, like, I don't know. Like, 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 to me, 4, and even though it's a really insane hacked apart movie, even Six has some moments I like, um, but other than that, like, you know, I like I don't want to be a hypocr- hypocrite, because I enjoy going to see these movies, I enjoy the Rob Zombie ones, I enjoyed the more recent one, Jamie Lear Curtis came back and all that, but I just like let's be honest there's there's no interesting story to tell of michael myers or laurie strode and i know that sounds like an asshole thing to say but like everything we know or we whatever about laurie strode it all revolves around her relationship with michael myers like they're just you know and especially if they would have gone in that direction because that's what carpenter was trying to do because he was like you know he he had some rights or some involvement in it and like halloween three was the last attempt to keep him uh connected to the halloween franchise you know what i mean so mm-hmm. yeah i i think it would have been better and i you know i don't know if box office wise it would have made a difference but you know th- then again like i know halloween 3 is seen as this colossal flop it's really not trev like mm-hmm. it definitely was the law of diminishing returns and it didn't make nearly as much as halloween one and two but it's it's still they didn't lose money on it i'll put it that yeah. way and when you look at Halloween 4, 5 and 6, it wasn't really till Halloween H2O that the franchise even made real money again. So I I th- I think they just, you know, would have like if they just would have weathered the shitstorm of 3 like not having Michael Myers and they would have done part 4 without him again. I th- I think you know, it it, it would have uh, either lived or died on its uh, the quality of the individual entries, and and to be honest, like I I don't I don't really get why like you because everybody says that's a fan of three says like oh like you know I wish there was a franchise that did that I don't get why you still can't do it You know what I mean Like I get it's It's hard to uh, market the actual anthology films that have three or four separate stories within them. But I think, you know, if you just use, like, Halloween, s- semicolon, and I'm not even talking about, like, the Michael Myers franchise, just filmmakers in general, if they wanted to, somebody else could start it, you know what I mean? I
0: mean it's like the last time I tried it was Tales from the Crypt, and what you always yeah. see is, like, if, if suddenly, so, like, you know, Demon Knight did well, and yeah. then Bordello Blood didn't, and then that they just get scared and say, well, I yeah. guess that's done. It's like, well, no, if you're going to do a franchise like this, you have to just run that risk of saying some of them aren't going to hit but like, try to come back with a stronger one. You know, okay, Bordello yeah. Blood didn't work. Well, then don't lay off on the comedy as much next time. you know? Right. But, but who knows? Yeah.
1: And and also, don't release it like two months after From Dusk to Dawn or whatever it was. You know what <laughs> what <laughs> it.
0: And maybe don't put Dennis Miller in it and just let him write all his dialogue and just turn it into a Dennis Miller movie.
1: Exactly. But... And you know, it's kind of funny too because in my opinion, that movie, I enjoy that movie. I'm you know, I do too. It's it's, it's, a, it's fun. It's yeah. Corey Feldman. It's you got Chris Sarandon in a vampire film, not playing a didn't vampire.
0: Gorgeous, like, yeah, exactly.
1: Angie Everhart's the best in it. Um, you know, it, it is what it is, but it's like, it's funny that, in my opinion, it's the best thing Dennis Miller ever did in his career, and it's like the thing that he shits on the most.
0: So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I, I, I actually, I, I just made that crack, but I actually kind of like Dennis Miller in that movie. Um, that actually kind of makes me happy that he hates it so much, because he seems like such a piece of shit, so... <laughs>
1: Yeah, so yeah, that's our top ten, and, and we always close out with uh, the movies that you know we want to see from this year, but we didn't we didn't see. But just real quick, Trev, was there any interesting pick that you wanted to be on your list that didn't make it? You want to mention real quick?
0: Well, like I said, um, yeah, there was quite a few actually. Like the ones that were like, like Poltergeist felt really weird leaving off, and then the other ones I'd say um, were kind of. Oh no, there was the um, the one other one I was trying to find a way to get in there. Um, but it just wasn't gonna break into this group was uh, Q, the winged serpent. Oh yeah, love Q. Yeah,
1: yeah. I I had Friday the Thirteenth Part Three on and I scratched it off. Um, I had the thing scratched it off. For, actually, forty eight hours was a hard one for me to scratch off because to me that's like kind of one of the perfect buddy comedies. So.
0: Yeah, I kept going I was I kept thinking about King of Comedy too. But yeah. uh, I I mean I love King of Comedy, but it's not it's not in like my top like five yeah. Scorsese's, so that's kinda how I was able to justify that, you know.
1: I think I I was just curious to mention this to see if you ever heard of this movie. I just caught it like during pandemic time on cable. But there's a it was on my list and I scratched it off. Uh I it ended up getting replaced by uh Come Back to the Five and Dime. But there's a movie called Personal Best, which I never ever heard of Till I just caught it on cable. It's Meryl Lou and she's like um uh, the movie came out in 1982 but it takes place in 1978, 1979ish and it's she's like a uh, like a training her dream is to be in the Olympics, you know, the whatever you call it, like the track and field events and it's basically her and like it's it's a pretty like somber downbeat thing about about her training and going to this university and what was interesting was was uh she kind of gets into a, you know, uh and i was shocked to see this for a movie at the time but she gets into a lesbian love affair with this other athlete who they actually got like a real life i'm blanking on her name now but they actually got a pretty well-known uh female um decathlete uh uh athlete to be in it with her and she it's like you never would have thought that they just plucked this lady into this movie because she was a um athlete because she's actually really good and it's very it's got a lot of frank sexuality in, it, in all honesty and scott gillen is great and he plays their coach and uh basically the gist of it and why i love it is through the course of the movie it takes place over the course of a year or two and her advancing in her training and setbacks and whatever but then the bomb drops that the americans are going to boycott the olympics so it's like the movie has a really bittersweet, and I, this isn't a spoiler, It's it's that's why it's called Personal Best, is the athletes of that time, the only shot at, well, not Olympic gold, but just the only thing for all these years of training that they had left was a final event for them to compete in, just to set their personal best times and scores of like whatever. So, I gotta admit, Trev, I am a sucker for these downbeat dramas, man. <laughs>
0: No, I never heard of that. Yeah, uh, yeah that's a, that's, a, that's a new one to me. Yeah, it's pretty obscure, but it's pretty damn good. I'm surprised I never heard of it. So, was there any part of you that wanted to go very problematic and and include the toy on your list? You know what? <laughs> no. That a, it, I'll say that is a movie I watched a lot as a, a kid. A
1: lot as a kid. No, I not Yeah, I thought about that, but but I was into the toy for 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 non uh uh <laughs> Problematic reasons. Yeah. I just like the, the fact that they wore those cool Spider-Man pajamas. I wanted those so bad when I was that's a kid. Great.
0: And I really I remember as a kid, I really wanted a Wonder Wheel because I thought yep. the Wonder Wheel just seemed like so yep. cool. But yeah. 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 I don't I
1: I I'm trying to think, is there any version you can well, I guess you could probably make that movie now oh. as long as you just had them both be the same color, right?
0: Yeah, I think that's the important yeah.
1: part. Like if Ryan Reynolds played the Richard Pryor part, everybody'd be cool with it
0: yeah I mean I wouldn't but <laughs> you wouldn't be cool with it? I'm just I'm just saying Brian Reynolds is no Richard Pryor that's oh what, that's no no doing. no
1: not not at all but I, I I always I think my favorite part of that movie besides the Spider-Man pajamas was uh I love the scene where, where like you know he goes in the toy store the kid and they tell him he can have anything he wants and he's like I want this janitor <laughs> like I don't know why like that that scene fascinated me as a kid because it's just like It's just like, and obviously it speaks to the character of the little boy, how lonely he is and everything like that. He needs a friend. But uh, yeah, if you get over the troubling aspects of it, I think it's kind of story-wise a sweet film. You know what I mean? Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And there's definitely a lot of funny, like very funny bits in it. Oh, yeah. An image that pops in my head a lot. I feel really, like whenever I hear or whenever I hear or see the word piranha, I think yeah. of uh, Piranhas attacking Richard Pryor in that movie and him running over the top of the water to get away from them yeah. with his pants all with little teeth marks in them.
1: It's it's definitely like I would even venture as far as Richard Pryor goes and I mean he did a lot of broad comedy don't get me wrong, but I think it's one of his like for lack of a better term, it's like one of his most Jim Carrey-esque performances.
0: yeah. Yeah. Sure. yeah.
1: So yeah. Makes me want to go watch it now. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. So, yeah. So, for the the movies we want to see, I can't remember who what director I saw talking about this. I can't remember if it was Tarantino or who. But i kind of been on a Nick Nolte kick lately. And I, I really fucked up a couple months ago. This movie was on demand on my cable system. And uh, I downloaded it and I didn't get to watch it before the, the things out. But I really want to see this movie Cannery Row with uh, Nick Nolte and... Uh, Deborah Winger, and it's just literally like a movie that takes place, uh, you know, in an old old times, and it's just about this um this area, the you know, literally Cannery Row of this like dock, and it's like the the economy there is dying of the you know the fish trade, and and uh, Nick Nolte kind of plays a guy who he has the means to get out of there. But he he chooses to live in this sad and depressing environment. Are you
0: familiar with Cannery Row at all, Trev? I've heard the title, but I couldn't say I know anything about it, really.
1: Yeah. So, what's one that you want to see, Trev?
0: Um, so, one that I'm actually fairly surprised I haven't seen, just because it seems to fall into a genre I quite like um, of like these kind of um, this thing that was really big in the late '70s and early '80s of vigilante films. Yeah. Um, you know, like I could have thrown Death Wish 2 into this list as well, but I'm one of those weirdos who. Uh, Kind of prefers Death Wish, Death Wish Three, because how I love how stupid that one is. But, um, but there's a film uh, called Fighting Back. Uh, do you know about this? It's, yeah, uh,
1: yeah, I, I've actually. Um... I've actually seen it a million years ago. Okay, yeah. yeah.
0: So it sounds like it would totally, t- totally be up my alley. First, so it's directed by Louis Teague, who you know did Alligator and Cujo, um, you know, Cat's Eye. So it's a, a director I'm a fan of his stuff, and stars Tom Skerritt. And it, it just just sounds like you know basically another you know a, a bit basically in that same vein of Death Wish and like Vigilante with Robert Forster um, about this guy who creates a, a neighborhood patrol of citizens in a you know in Philadelphia. Um, and essentially it's just that kind of general, like here's the, the regular Joe fighting back against uh, the hoodlums that are, you know, destroying the city. Uh, I'm sure it probably has some, you know, today problematic, you know, elements in terms of, uh, you know, Oh, this uh, stand and fight kind of uh, idealism, but that's yeah. part of the fun of these films as well. And I really like, as I said, I like the death wish series. I like this kind of genre. So yeah, uh, this is one I want to check out at some point. Yeah. I mean, I think
1: probably people of our age, probably grew up on these type of vigilante films Mm -hmm. trev um but as i get older the one thing and like when i when i watch one obviously like with the death wish films in particular that you know i actually really like the first death wish quite a bit oh Um, i do too yeah that's i I
0: mean that is the best one yeah yeah
1: yeah. but but like more than anything i always get the thinking when you watch these vigilante films because i feel like at the time they were released we were supposed to sit there and be like, yeah, get them. Blah, blah, blah. But now it's like, you, it really makes you wonder like, is this really any better than like what the bad guys are doing? You know what
0: I mean? Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's, that's what's interesting about them. Right. That's, you know, it's, it's yeah. like a character like the Punisher who, when you're a kid, you might think like, Oh, he's so cool. And I think as you get older, you understand what the problematic elements are of him, but that makes the storytelling around him more compelling. Uh, right. If the right people are handling it.
1: Right. No. Yeah. It's interesting, but yeah, I actually did see this and um, on the list, and I was just like, I re- I very vaguely remember it because uh, I looked up some stills of it and I saw Tom here, and I was like, yeah, like I remember this movie, but it it's actually is one I want to watch because I really don't remember shit about it. But um, another one I, I like, I had no idea this film uh, existed, Trevor I'm curious if you ever heard of it. A movie called "Wrong Is Right" starring Sean Connery. Have you? Oh, yeah. you
0: feel- I I was looking at that one too, but yeah. I almost put it on this list, but I didn't. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So just to explain the concept real quick, and again, I'm just going off a summary, but it sounds very interesting. Basically, it's like, uh, uh you know, at the time the movie was made, it's a it's it's taking place in a probably a, a near future, a few yard, few years away, whatever, and it's basically. Sean Connery plays an unscrupulous reporter where it's, like, basically the world is headed towards World War III. There's, like, violence all across the globe. And, like, Sean Connery, like, he kind of runs and, like, and, like, it's kind of taken over primetime TV even more than just regular news programs. Uh, Like, you know, people are really fascinated by this. It's almost like tabloid TV, but about real world affairs. And, like, yeah, he's basically running around covering, like, there's various plots, uh, but with with foreign countries and in, in involving the U.S. as well, it's like, which is, we're basically on the brink of World War Three. And it, at least from what I could tell from the trailer, because I checked out the trailer too, like, it's it seems like just one of those really interesting, like, like satirical films that you would get mm-hmm. in the 70s and 80s, you know what I
0: mean? Yeah. Yeah, no, I was definitely intrigued by that one too when I was looking at it.
1: And I think more than anything, like, more than just the subject matter, I was like, I'm really intrigued that Sean Connery wanted to do a movie like that, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Um, So another one for me is this is another one where it just seems like something I would have seen at some point in my life, but uh, somehow it escaped me. And that is uh, I was about to say the 1982 film, but obviously, Um, but this is an American Japanese horror film called The House Where Evil Dwells, uh, which is about American family that moves into a haunted house in Japan. And I, I just kind of like that idea, you know, like obviously the early 80s, you know, we talked about Poltergeist and Amityville and, and stuff like that. The early 80s was, uh, you know, there's an explosion of haunted house uh, and ghost movies. But I like that kind of internationalism of saying, you know, let's put an American couple in a, in a Japanese haunted house. I would, I would hope maybe there's some interesting cultural elements to that. Um, but also the, uh, the woman in the couple is, uh, Susan George, who I think is like one of the sexiest actresses ever. Um, you know, you think of stuff like, uh, well, it's weird to say she's sexy and straight, uh, in, uh. or straw dogs, considering what happens. <laughs> but well, you know, she, I mean, she's
1: sexy in the first five minutes before.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I mean, I think of things like Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry, and the the Pete Walker films she made. Uh, I just and Venom. You know, she's just she's just gorgeous and an actress I like. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I'm looking at this. It's not like it has the most amazing reviews, but I'll watch any kind of like supernatural ghost movie made from this this time period. And like I said, the the Japanese element sounds a little interesting to me.
1: Well, since since we kind of broach the topic there and we are being problematic tonight Trevor. what's your take on the uh the infamous assault scene in uh straw dogs because there's this weird take that uh supposedly susan george character is enjoying it and i gotta say i never really felt that when i watched the movie do you do, do you pick up that there's some sort of ambiguity with her character
0: I think there is I don't know that I ever read it like she just entirely enjoys it but it's more like she just accepts it and decides that the way to like get through this is to kind of go along with it. Right. But I think she does still have like a connection to that character from their past. But uh, right. but I mean the whole thing that that's a that's a complex movie, you know. Yeah, it that, is. That's not a movie. Weird just talking about like that's a movie that is made to me, make that movie is designed to make you feel um and and consider the appropriateness of like, you know, fighting right. back. So I think like Sam Peckinpah knew what he was doing with that movie. So
1: I got to say to me, that was one of the the most offensive things when they remade that film in all honesty,
0: I never even bothered and I couldn't,
1: you know. I, yeah, I finally rented it. And I mean, if I had to be like a complete objective film, critic, it's not like a terrible, terrible film, mm-hmm. but it's terrible in relation to the original. Cause you, you totally see like the way they're trying to, and it has, it has actors in it that I like, but it's just, it's, it's, such a pale imitation, and it's just—I don't know—like that time has passed. You know, the the point, mm-hmm. and like you said, the complexity of uh the original Straw Dogs. Like the time has passed. Like that's that's not what cinema now is about. You know what I mean?
0: And who was like the, who was the main guy in that one? Who's the it, main actor?
1: It was uh, what's his name? James the um, the Cyclops. Was it? I can't remember Marsden. Okay,
0: yeah, James Marsden. Yeah. That's yeah. right because I was thinking it was definitely someone who like. It means something in in Straw Dogs when it's d- nerdy little Dustin Hoffman, you right? Know? Right. And the fact that like James Marsden is just, like, this like this strapping, handsome, you know, guy, uh, built guy. I don't know. Just it definitely just well, didn't feel right.
1: But. What, what's what's even weirder about it, Trev, is like they kind of like try to make him do a Dustin Hoffman imperson- impersonation with like with the glasses and the, the yeah. clothes. Like try to try to cover up to make him a Dustin Hoffman type, and it just that doesn't, you know. You want to
0: impress me? You you make straw dogs and cast Richard Kind in the lead role. Oh,
1: Richard Kind! I mean, talk about one of the most versatile performers we have in the cinema today. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he, you know, especially all those years of all that (laughs) the sitcoms he's done, he'd be ready for it.
0: Yeah. All right, um, I'll do like my, well, I said I had four. I'll just quickly say one and then get into my, my real one. Um, yeah. One I was definitely looking at, it was uh, it, it was Vice Squad um, with uh, a Gary Sherman film um, yeah. with uh, Wingshauser as this like crazy pimp named Ramrod. I'm a really big fan of Elric Kane, uh, the host of uh, Pure Cinema Podcast and uh, Colors of the Dark Podcast. And I, I found that my sensibilities tend to uh, align with him his quite often. And he became like obsessed with this movie in recent years. He's particularly just obsessed with Wingshauser in general. Uh, and I kind of get it and I agree because like when you get a good crazy Wings Hauser performance, there's nothing like it. And ever since he went on and on about this film, I have really wanted to see it. It's one where I kind of I always almost pull the trigger on getting this the Shout Factory Blu-ray. But it's the thing where it, it's really obviously because it's Shout Factory. It's it's a very expensive blind buy. Right. But uh, but I've definitely thought about it a bunch of times because it just sounds like it's probably a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you've seen that one or not, but that's.
1: No. Nah, okay. I, ha- I haven't, but, it, but I, I know. I know what you're talking yeah. about.
0: But the but the one I really wanted to highlight was another one where this just seems like it's it's again, this sounds like it might be really bad, but probably bad in a way I would really quite enjoy. And this is the movie The Challenge. Um, oh, yeah. A, a, a John Frankenheimer movie written by John Sayles. So, again, two great filmmakers um, and starring Scott Glenn and Tashiro Mifun. And just what a what an odd combination. <laughs> so you have like a you know a, a younger Scott Glenn and, and you know an older Toshiro Mifune. And so this is about um, you know Scott Glenn is apparently a, a down on his luck prize fighter who's hired to smuggle this like uh, ancient katana back to Japan that belongs to this particular family. But it turns out that this is all like a setup and he gets involved in this like kind of battle between these two warring uh or this this you know, these warring Yakuza members in Japan and ends up kind of becoming an uh you know an apprentice of uh Shashira character and learning, you know, the Japanese samurai ways. Um I don't know, it sounds like it might be really corny, but I but I love that kind of corny, you know, eighties action and I, Scott Glenn and Shashira Mifoon are both badasses, so sounds like it could be pretty cool. Yeah, I, I think
1: Scott Glenn is like. Really, sorry, before I was trying to hold in a laugh, I made the mistake of uh, looking up some pictures of the remake of Straw Dogs, and I was <laughs> trying not to laugh. But uh, no, yeah, Scott Glenn. I mean, he's talk about one of the most um, underrated badasses. Like it's mm-hmm. it's not it's not a 1982 movie, but you know, one movie I I really want to see. I want to say it's from the 90s. Is Scott Glenn was in the original version of uh, Man on Fire?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah it, I've seen it. Yeah.
1: Uh, is a pretty how would you compare it to the denzel
0: movie uh i mean it's not as good but that's only because not only because but i mean it doesn't it's not allowed to be as flashy and right. you know it it feels like it, if you feel the limitations of it but mm-hmm. story-wise it's still just as good and he's good in it
1: yeah trying to again scott glenn he was here he was in my uh Decath Elite movie too so, i mean it, it kind of sucks too like scott glenn's like one of those guys and i appreciate that they They kept him going in movies for a long time, like, even all the way up through Sucker Punch. But, well, I guess also, too, the Daredevil TV show. But it's, like, it's one of those things where it's, like, Scott Glenn's one of those guys I wish he never had to get old, pretty much. Yeah. (laughs) Same with Charles Bronson. It's, like, there's just certain guys that are, like, they're so perfect for those type of roles. And you don't want to see them, you know, quote, unquote, age out of them, you know?
0: Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm just looking at pictures of the challenge, and there's one picture of like Tashir Mafune and Scott Glenn both entering a room, and Tashir Mafune has his samurai sword up ready, and Scott Glenn has a machine gun, and it's like, come on, I want to watch this movie right now, you know? Yeah, like
1: I I don't remember if it was like HBO commercials or what, but I remember like the marketing for that movie at some point, like the trailers, like, and it always looked like it was like a badass movie.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. So I just, I just have one last one, and this is like. I don't really have too much to say about it. And I was really more curious if you've heard about this, Trev. So there is a movie, let's see, it came out April 2nd, 1982, called Pandemonium, which was a parody slasher film, which, like, I'm always up for those. Um, But the, the cast on this is awesome, dude. It's got Carol Kane, Phil Hartman, Judge Reinhold, Tom Smothers, Eileen Brennan, Paul Rubens. Like yeah, I've never heard of this movie until I looked at the list the other day, and, and apparently it was. And I wish they would have called it this, but it was originally going to be called Thursday the Twelfth.
0: Goat. Uh, I just had to. I had to. When you brought it up, I had to hop onto my letterbox to confirm something. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I had to confirm a date. I watched Pandemonium for the first time January thirty first of this year.
1: Are you I just serious? recently.
0: Yeah, I just recently watched that uh about a month or so ago. So Was, was um, it
1: something like you knew about or did you just recently came to it?
0: I'm trying to remember how I came to it. Um I think it's on I don't know if it still is, but I believe it was on Prime. Okay. And uh and you know, oftentimes if you just click on one thing on Prime, it sends you down like this rabbit hole of finding other things that sound interesting. Right. And uh, I don't even remember like why I clicked on that because I think in my head, maybe I did know about it, but I, there's another, there's like another slasher comedy from that same around the same time called Wacko.
1: Yeah. I've uh, heard of that one. I,
0: yeah. And I feel like I was getting those two confused in my head sometime, but I, have, I still haven't seen Wacko, but I've, I've seen Pandemonium. Now I will say I wasn't necessarily blown away by Pandemonium, but I yeah. think you'll like it. I think you should watch it. I think speaking to that cast you talked about, Um, kind of the, the main person in it, the like what we would consider the lead role is Carol Kane Mm -hmm. and she is awesome in it. Like she plays like basically she's Carrie, she's a a psychic girl and they do like a lot of, you know, Carrie jokes. Um, but then really like the real show stealers are, uh, Tommy Smothers plays like a, a Mountie who's on the case investigating the the killings. And then his sidekick is Paul Rubens. wow. And it's a very young Paul Rubens and you can see him like trying out some of like the Pee Wee Herman mannerisms that he was clearly developing right then. Um, So like there every time those two are on screen, the movie definitely like ticks up a little bit. Um, But it's a lot of like really dumb, really corny humor. But I was actually kind of impressed at how goofy and how surreal some of the humor was willing to be. So I will say. In my review, I basically talked about how I liked it more than Student Bodies, which was the other yeah. like slasher parody of the time, which is a movie I always... I've given that movie so many tries because Me I feel too. like I should like it, and I never do.
1: I can't uh, get into it.
0: Yeah, and I thought Pandemonium was was better than that, at least.
1: So. Yeah. And, th- and that's really... I was just like, well, when I read about this, I was like, I hope it's better than the Student Bodies, but how awesome would it be you could make a section on your shelf if you wanted to if they would have stuck with the original title you could have had Thursday the 12th Friday the 13th and Saturday the 14th all right next to each other
0: yeah missed opportunity
1: for sure was there any other ones you had on your want to see list Jeff?
0: no I mean uh, nothing that's like there's part of me that says Death Death Trap I guess but I feel like I have seen Death Trap and just don't remember it at all you know dude i uh
1: i don't even know which speaking of i guess uh actually it won't matter because by the time this airs will be gone but uh yeah warner archive the final four for 44 sale trev mm-hmm. yeah. but yeah death trap was a blind buy for me on a four for 44 um deal and i gotta say like i love that movie mm-hmm. I, I, again it's 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 just it's another like play translated into a movie it all takes place in one house um i don't think it's quite over the i think it's like over the course of two or three nights spread out over time but yeah i i really like death trap and uh, i think more than anything i would recommend it to you trev um that it's uh it's interesting seeing michael kane and christopher reeve play off each other so mm-hmm. yeah i would definitely that th- that was another one because i kind of had this like back and forth between that and uh come back to the five and dime where i was like do i want to put two movies on my list that are like because I, I just love that novel approach you know what i mean but mm-hmm. i do i want to put two movies on the list that are basically plays turned into a movie you know what i mean
0: that's not even the only play turned into a movie that michael cain and christopher reeve are both in because there's also uh noises really? off
1: which is really? 92
0: which is a 92 film
1: i've never se- i i know about the movie but i i knew oh, michael cain was you
0: you should definitely see noises off so you okay. would, I I know you'd like that
1: movie. Yeah. I I will check it out for sure. So yeah, so we have officially reached uh, the minimum re- minimal requirement for one of these uh, favorite movie shows. So we are now at 2 hours 30 minutes and yeah. yeah. I mean that's that's pretty interesting. Can you imagine like what do you think the cut-off year will be of like, you know, in time that that will will stop doing these where where the year will be so great that we won't have to do them anymore. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, I, I don't know if that's the great. way to phrase it. I could keep going forever. You know, I don't know if I told you this before, Goat, but um, maybe I mentioned this to you. But like, uh, so last year in the early days of the of the the lockdowns and the pandemic, mm-hmm. um, when we were first all struggling trying to figure out ways to like occupy our minds and our time, you know, one thing I did, um, this was probably we're probably getting close to like the year anniversary of me starting to do this. So I was, like, sitting in my apartment all day, you know, couldn't go do anything or whatever. And I was like, hmm, what should I do? And I actually started – I got out a, a notebook and I got onto Wikipedia and I started looking at all the movies released every year. And I started to write down every movie that I re- that I know I saw in the theater in my entire life. Wow. Because I've never been one of those guys to like, collect – I've never saved my tickets and all that stuff, yeah. you know. But I was like – well, let me just track this and see if I can remember what is the first movie. So I actually called my mom and like asked her what's the first movie I went and saw in the theater. Mm. Um, but, but beyond that, then I was just kind of going off of, OK, which ones do I have specific memories of seeing? And it was very interesting to do that and see how, you know, as you know, like I, I come from a family, like my dad was a big movie buff. And that's what made me a movie buff. And we would really go to the movies like almost every weekend. And even when I was, I'm was i sure it's the same for you, I have a lot of memories of going to see a movie when I was very young, but not remembering anything about the movie, yeah, just yeah. knowing that I went to see it. And right. that was very interesting to, you know, to write down like, oh, yeah, I remember that I went and saw this movie, but I couldn't tell you a damn thing about it. Um, but, yeah, and going through and doing that, of obviously going through like the whole 80s and 90s. Uh, it was always just fun seeing and revisiting like those films I haven't thought about in years. So that's why I think it's fun to do these episodes. It caused me again, to look at those like year lists and just look at everything that came out through the whole year. And I just think it's a really fun like exercise.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I I gotta say, um, you know there's been a couple for various reasons whatever there's been a couple periods over the last 5 years of doing this show where I slacked off and you know went a couple months without doing a show six i think the longest was like 6 months without doing a show and i i kind of regret it and, and one of the main reasons why is like i like keeping us on track with this theme of talking about particular years and uh so yeah at the very least at the bare minimum i hope we can do one of these shows uh uh you know once a year or whatever because i i think these and the more more recent episode we did about the scream queens i think that's some of the the most fun i've i've had doing this stuff which i mean it's always fun doing 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 shows and stuff like that doing it wrong but like i feel like um even though it might take a little while to uh, put, you know, prepare or whatever, I think these episodes where we really have to prepare, uh, and, and think and weigh multiple films. And, you know, like, I think those are some of the more, you know, interesting episodes we've done, so to speak. So, which, which by, by the way, Trev, uh, y- you influenced my life uh, more than, you know, um, I, uh, I was going through, cause I got a little bit behind on your other, this is not just a shameless plug, but this is real life shit. Uh, this isn't SeaWorld. This is as real as it gets. Uh, last uh, <laughs> yesterday um I uh I I was going through I was like I got to get caught up. I, I was like I knew I was like 3 episodes behind of uh Failure to Franchise, your other podcast. And uh, what I didn't know is when I checked my Spotify, I still had like 10 minutes left of the Battleship um, episode. So I, I finished up the Battleship episode and then last night like literally like, in in one hand and in the other was John Woo's A Better Tomorrow and Battleship. And I chose A Better, better Tomorrow, but, but Battleship will be spinning in my player very again soon, thanks to you. so Nice. Yeah. And I know we talked about that already, but, you know, mm-hmm. Battleship. So, um, is there anything, because I'm curious about this, is there anything that's interesting to you? Uh, like, the response you guys have gotten with failure to franchise because it's it's one thing to do kind of like what, what, what we're doing here and it's kind of like we're kind of talking about some of the most beloved movies of all time but does anybody ever like reach out and give you guys interesting feedback considering you're talking about movies that literally died on the vine
0: i mean at this point i'm still we're, our, our show is still relatively young and i think we're still growing um you know whatever audience we're gonna have. Uh, we haven't really had a lot of feedback from people we don't know yet, you know? So really I'm just Great. hearing mostly from my friends who are listening or who are telling me they're enjoying it. And, uh, you know, like, like Jelly has said like that he feels like he learned something in every episode, which is kind of like what we're hoping for, you know? And, oh, yeah. you know, I, I I put a little bit of work into writing those intros for every episode and, oh, and that's yeah. been fun. And I've heard that people enjoy those. Um, so yeah, I, I look forward to maybe getting feedback to it. I definitely am hoping that at some point we have, you know, an audience of, uh, a larger audience to where we might hear from some of the people of movies we kind of aren't that impressed with. Cause I would like to hear from the fans of the movies we don't like. Right. You know? But, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it hasn't really happened yet. So we'll see.
1: So yeah. Failure of franchise, which, which... I guess I always forget how new it is because you guys just started that like roughly halfway through 2020, so it's still new. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But but that's that's currently my fr- unfortunately the way my work goes, uh, I'm not able to listen to shows as much as I used to. I used to literally listen to two or three long podcasts a day, and now I'm lucky if I get two or three in a week, really more like two. Well, yeah, the entire
0: reason you and I know each other is because you originally were, like, you you basically said, like, I'll listen to any movie podcast.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And it was true for a very long time. And then, uh, like, it even got to the point where, like, I had to find new ones because I would, like, listen to all the back catalog that everybody had who had been doing it for years and whatever. But, uh, yeah, it's kind of crazy how long we've been doing it. And then, uh, because I haven't been in the loop, uh, I think the last – Days of Future Podcast to listen to were the one where you and Joe talked about how you guys went to the uh, drive-in not together but separately to to see New Mutants. What have you guys been talking about on there lately?
0: Uh, we've been really kind of diving more into like the the current run of the, the comic books. Uh, so since since Joe's current and you know there's a lot going on like the finally after kind of A few years of the X-Men kind of being um, less important in the Marvel Universe. uh, We're enjoying an era now where there's like a really big kind of uh, X-Men event going on in general with that side universe. And they're adding new titles all the time. It seems like it's going very well. So it's giving us a lot to talk about. And we've also recently um, been trying to find these kind of X-Men oddities to dive into. Right. So, for instance, we just did a recent episode looking at a a, a one-shot book from the mid-90s we found called be extra safe with Blockbuster kid print video and the X-Men, which Uh there was this program in Blockbuster called Kid Print where you would take, this is so strange. I had to do the research on this for the episode.
1: I kind of remember this. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You would take your young child to Blockbuster and they would, the employees and you uh, obviously would go into the back of the store, into the back room, sit the kid down and they would videotape the Blockbuster employee asking the kids questions about himself or herself and then they would give you that tape to keep, and the idea was that if your child ever goes missing, you give that tape to the authorities. So they have video um, right. footage of your kid talking, and that was just such a weird thing. Uh, and apparently, this, you know, like nine thousand different blockbusters did this. Oh, wow. And one of the ways they made it not seem horrible or boring for kids to have to go do it was they gave them this comic book, uh, which was uh, the X Men, basically teaching kids about stranger danger. So we found that issue, and we read through the issue, and it's, you know, very weird and very bizarre. It's, it's obviously it's hard as in the right place, but it has some very strange decisions, storytelling-wise. So, so we yeah. like doing stuff like that. We like finding strange arcana from, like, the past of, in X-Men history and looking at it, too.
1: Yeah, because I'm a few years older than you. Uh, I kind of – it was it was through school, but, like, there kind of was a program, too. It, it wasn't like that. It was before really everybody had video cameras, but – I think it was, a lot of it was spurred on, unfortunately, by the Adam Walsh incident, mm-hmm. which which yeah. that scared the shit out of me when I was a kid. I actually remember when that was going on. And, like, you know, I was very young when it went on, the, the idea that that kind of thing could happen to, you know, a kid, especially when you are a kid yourself. Uh, yeah, I remember, like, they came, like, um, there was a program at my school probably when I was in kindergarten or first grade at the latest where it was more rudimentary where they would just take photos of you and but they also took your fingerprints i remember too so very very creepy and chilling mm-hmm. what a downer way to end episode track <laughs> <laughs> but no like i I wanted to thank you obviously and um i know we recorded it about a month back but the uh, screen queens episode uh you know i'm happy to report that uh yes i did tag her and yes uh we we did get, get a like from Brink Stevens on Instagram, so I was actually very happy about that. Nice, so, nice. Yeah.
0: That That is one of my favorite podcasts I've ever done with you. I thought that was, like, a really fun discussion. Yeah.
1: So. And it's, like, we're literally, a, it's only been in release for about 48 hours right now. But uh, I I was, a li- not that it matters, because, hey, we just do it for fun. But I, I thought, if anything, that possibly might be one that, like, you know, might be a little slow on the old downloads and, like, within probably not even two days, probably within 36 hours, it it had more downloads than most shows get in like the first week. So I like, I have this little bit of hope and faith, Trev, that the there's, there's, there's other hardcore fans of the screen Queens out there. So,
0: yeah, I definitely think so. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So anyway, Trev, obviously I want to thank you again, man. This was a blast. Um, you know, thank you for always coming up with cool ideas for shows to do. Thank you for continuing this series with me. Because um, I really don't know of anybody else I could possibly do this with. Because, like, I mean, you're a little bit younger than me. But I think everybody else that I do this show with, I think, is, like, like noticeably younger. So I don't even think they would really, like, be as familiar with, the, you know, some of these years uh, worth of movies. But, um, yeah. But, yeah, it's, it's always interesting, too, to go through lists list and find shit that you didn't even know exists. So, yeah, so that's definitely mm-hmm. a nice reason to continue this. So, everybody, thanks again for listening to us. as lather on about 40-year-old movies for 2 hours and 41 minutes. And, everybody, we'll catch you again here soon, right back in the movie graveyard.
0: You're listening to the Electronic Media Collective Podcast Network. Yeah, it's a mouthful. For more great shows, visit electronicmediacollective.com
1: Are you still on the line, Trev? I am, yeah. Sorry. I don't know what happened. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm, 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 I'm waiting for you. It's supposed to be my turn. Duh. Sorry about that.
0: No, that's all right. I thought you were just I thought you were just taking like a little quick break. That's all right. No,
1: I was like, wait, what, what what I'll do is I'll snip that out and then we'll mm-hmm. put it at the end as a blooper. How about that? Yeah, that's fine. Sorry about that, everybody. All right, here we go.